Hey, Brian, welcome to The Goods Film Podcast, and listeners, welcome to, we are recording this on December 23rd, two days before Christmas, and as a Christmas present to Brian, I gave him our most ambitious watching assignment yet, which he subsequently turned into an even more ambitious watching assignment. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing okay. I'm ready for the holiday. And it's going to be fitting because, you know, this is actually going to premiere the week between Christmas and New Year's, most likely. And this whole franchise kicks off on New Year's. So it ended up being uh, timely. And just as Dan said, I did expand the watching assignment. Because what we'll be covering today is High School Musical, the musical, the series the mockumentary series that debuted with the streaming service Disney Plus, which ties into the existing high school musical franchise of Disney Channel original movies. So it was already going to be our biggest episode yet in terms of watch length. It was going to be over five hours worth of watching to get through that first season, which was a little longer than I remembered it being. I remembered it being like a more traditional sitcom length. So I guess I signed up Brian for more than he initially expected and I initially pitched, but that's all right. Because then as soon as I told Brian that I was going to do this, he texted me at midnight the following night saying, I have just watched High School Musical 1, 2, and 3 consecutively. So I knew that I couldn't let him watch the trilogy. And then he tacked on the Sharpay spinoff as well without rewatching them myself. That's right. You got to have Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure from 2011 in the mix as well. <laughs> So the total watch time came to 718 minutes between the four movies and the 10 episodes of TV. Probably our most ambitious episode for a long time, although I know you're trying to get me to watch Gravity Falls at some point. How many minutes would that be? So Gravity Falls is 40 20-minute episodes, so a total of 800 minutes. So kind of on par with this. That's the magical number <laughs> I was working towards. Spoiler. All right. Well, as Brian mentioned, the way that I'm hoping to kind of structure today is to start by taking a look at the high school musical series itself. I'm hoping we can do many recaps and reviews of the four high school musical movies. And then we can hop into the main course, the spin-off series, High School Musical, the Musical of the Series, which as Brian mentioned, debuted with Disney Plus back in 2019. We got ourselves a big task ahead of us, Brian. Are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Uh, one word of lead in is that a reason that I've felt connected to this series and we'll, we'll cover a little bit as we go through each movie, but I was class of 2008 in high school. And in a sense, so were these characters. I, I guess they're like one year older, but the, the movies were spaced out such that it took a little longer than a normal high school career. Uh, but the first one came out in 2006 when I was a sophomore in high school. The second one came out the summer after my junior year. And then the third one that's about the senior year was released to theaters early in my first year in college. So you're kind of right. It's you're kind of right around the age of the characters. Yeah. So there's some some synchronicity. I think it was aimed at a, a younger demographic than concurrent 
but certainly I was aware of it and it followed along. It's it's almost like the Toy Story series, how I'm like exactly the age of Andy through each of the, the episodes of the, the Toy Story series. Right. Which is what made me bummed when four didn't jump ahead in time. That's four a good is point. like right after three. Yeah. Okay, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> That'd be an interesting one for us to talk through for sure. But yeah, I was a sophomore in college, I think, when the original came out. So I was definitely a little bit older than the target audience, but I have a lot of younger siblings. I also am a sap and get a lot of joy out of watching childhood entertainment. So I, of course, caught up with this and I found it to be pretty winning and charming. Uh, Obviously not high art, but we can talk a little bit more about some of the strengths and weaknesses as we go. So High School Musical 1. I didn't write the years down, but I think it was 2006. It was 06, 07, 08 for the original, and then 2011 for Sharpay's spinoff, if I'm not mistaken. And then 2019 for High School Musical, the musical, the series. So I wrote a little note here as kind of an intro that kind of aligns with what Brian was saying. Is I think there are a set of people of a certain age and disposition for which the first High School Musical movie is one of the most iconic pieces of entertainment of their childhood. And... Hence the appeal of creating a TV series 13 years later of people who were beholden to the original. I think that was kind of the business rationale for High School Musical, the musical, the series is really High School Musical 1 was a Disney Channel original movie that became a breakout sensation. Zac Efron became a major star, as did some of the other cast members. It was uh, something that everyone knew what it was, which I'm not sure there are any other Disney Channel original movies where you can say the same thing. Do you remember how you heard about this movie, Brian? So I didn't have cable until when I was in eighth grade, I think. And from that point onward, I had this little TV in my room and I pretty much just always had it tuned to some cable station and just had it going in the background just because I could. So a lot of that was either the sci-fi channel or the Disney channel for whatever reason, like every night of the week, they would run a Disney channel original movie in the evening. And so I saw many of them. I wouldn't say all of them, but a lot. And they would also hype whatever the new one was. And they like four of them would come out a year, four or five. And so I, I presumably heard about it through that. I think that was the reason. Gotcha. So I will jump into to it now. Like I said, uh, the way I'm hoping to structure this, quick recap and review of the movie. If it starts to become unwieldy, we can wing it. But let's just go with it for now. So High School Musical 1 opens with Troy Bolton, played by Zac Efron, and Gabriela Montez, played by Vanessa Hudgens, who are both on vacation at a New Year's Eve party when they are called on stage as total strangers and have to sing a song together, and they immediately display chemistry and charisma together. When school picks back up after winter break, Gabriella and Troy are surprised to find that Gabriella has actually transferred to Troy's school. Uh, Troy is a basketball star and Gabriella is a former academic decathlon champion. So they're the kind of jock and geek dichotomy. I also wanted to say that in terms of real world high school themed musicals, I think High School Musical owes the most to West Side Story and also Grease. This opening is very Grease because 
it's these two characters who bond on vacation and then suddenly find out that they're at the same school together. And that's the opening of the show. Completely agree. Back in 2017, I wrote a review of the High School Musical soundtrack. And I think I opened it by saying that High School Musical 1 was one-third Grease, one-third Romeo and Juliet, which would therefore be West Side Story, and one-third just pep talk to believe in each other. Yeah, I definitely agree. Those are the kind of touch points for this. At East High, their high school, the Winter Musicale, as the drama teacher keeps pronouncing it, which is pretty funny. I don't think people actually say that. It's kind of funny imagining how these movies think of like the people they are depicting in terms of realism, but the, the drama teacher keeps calling it a Winter Musicale, which will be hosted by the Drama Club, and it is getting ready to audition. And both Troy and Gabriella are kind of tempted to audition, despite heavy pressure from the outside to stick to their respective cliques, the jock clique and the geek clique. When the drama teacher overhears them singing expressively together, she offers them a callback, despite initially saying that they couldn't audition because they had arrived too late for the audition. Twins Sharpay, who's played by Ashley Tisdale, and Ryan, who's played by Lucas Grabeel, are proud drama geeks. They're the long-reigning queen and king of the drama club. They're dynamic performers, but very hammy and over-the-top. And they are both completely aghast, especially Sharpay, at having to do callbacks against non-drama club members. Ryan and Sharpay scheme with the basketball players and the academic decathlon competitors to try and break up Troy and Gabriella and dissuade them from performing at the callbacks. When they try this and Troy and Gabriella's friends see how much makes Troy and Gabriella sad, the prospect of having to miss the callbacks, they kind of have a change of heart and decide to support them. But Ryan and Sharpay have one last trick up their sleeve. They reschedule callbacks at the same time as the big basketball game, as well as the academic decathlon. Troy and Gabriella's friends make sure that both of them make callbacks with various of their own counter schemes. And Troy and Gabriella manage to sweep the school in supportive cross-click spirit. They win the lead roles, and along with their state championships in basketball and academic decathlon. And it all wraps up with them singing, we're all in this together, and Ryan and Sharpay accepting their their role as understudies. So that's kind of a quick overview of the High School Musical 1 plot. Is there anything you wanted to add before we jumped into our mini reviews, Brian? Yeah, so we don't, we don't get into politics too much on this program. Dan has dropped the fact in maybe five of our episodes so far, he's, he's called himself a leftist which is not a descriptor that I would use for myself. I, t- I tend to keep play these things pretty close to the vest, but I, w- I would say that these films and the series is a quantum leap. These are our leftist leaning programs. Certainly on a social spectrum, they are very, they attempt to be progressive for the times. I actually have some anecdotes about that in the, when we get to High School Musical 2. A huge thing about the moral of High School Musical 1, however you read it, it's all about breaking down barriers. It's about people from two different backgrounds, the jock and the geek, coming together, breaking out of their cliques, but also kind of taking over an existing clique. They are uprooting the theater kids who are there already and, like, displacing them. 
I, I think it should also be said that, you know, however you read it, many of the relationships depicted are interracial, just like West Side Story. I think this is part and parcel with the message of breaking out of the status quo. You know, you don't just have to stick with the one thing. You can be anything and be with anyone and part of any community. And you found this something that detracted from your enjoyment as you were rewatching this time? I don't know. I just think it is blunt. I think it has a very clear agenda that it is pushing. I would say that's true. It's interesting what you said about how they come in to take out the drama group. That didn't bother me because really what they are attempting to take out is the presumptiveness of Ryan and Sharpay, that it needs to be something where everyone has an equitable chance. And I guess that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, this movie is easily the the most didactic in its tone out of all of them. I mean, the thing when things are bad is stick to the status quo, which needs to be taken down. Then the climax when things go right is called breaking free again from that status quo. And then the conclusion of that is we are all in this together. Everything's equitable. So I completely agree. It's laying out its agenda out front more than any of them. And I think it is a little heavy handed. I I do think that that is a downside to this film. I I think it's just that it's on a mission. It's, It's trying to accomplish something, but within the bubblegum wrapper of just being insipid pop or something. I don't know. It, it's trying to drive a point home. Sure. I think one interesting thing here is that I am very much on the team of Ryan and Sharpay truthers. Like, I don't know how you could watch this movie and legitimately think just based on their onstage performances that Troy and Gabriella were actually the correct castings for the lead. Ryan and Sharpay are really good. They sing really well. They got choreographed routines. They're experienced. They know how to project. The only thing that I could think of that I really noticed this time is like, I guess if it's from a PR perspective, like look how many people Troy and Gabriella brought into the callbacks. And that's just the callbacks, you know, like maybe this is a way to get more of the school involved. But if you're going strictly on merit, no way Troy and Gabriella should have been selected as the leads. Not a chance in hell. Bop to the top is a legitimate bop. That is one thing I really enjoyed is going back and watching these songs over again on YouTube. In addition to our 700 some minutes of view time, (laughs) they are just swamped with comments, especially the Ryan and Sharpay focused numbers on how they were wronged. Just there is an (laughs) army of Sharpay converts in the comments on YouTube. They they just need to rally them to their banner. <laughs> that said, Sharpay is kind of awful and annoying throughout the film. But right, right. again, strictly from onstage performance. I mean, that that could be a point as well if, if maybe the drama teacher sensed their artificiality. But the connection between Troy and Gabriella was emotionally real. And that's what they needed to draw on. But the bullshitty thing is the way it depicts that realness is like, Like they do these weird, they do everything slower and less showy. So I guess that's stand in for more authentic. But if you're doing like a musical, like, I don't know, it's okay to be showy. You want to be showy in a high school musical, but they keep doing these things where they like, it's meant to feel improvisational. I think they throw in these little like 
riffs in between lines like oohs and brighter brighter in between lines that i think is supposed to like depict an authentic connection to the material and it generally just sounds bad when they do that (laughs) it like it does not work for me at all from a musical standpoint now before i i crap too much on troy and gabriella i do want to point out i think zach efron has the presence of a movie star in this i think he's a he's a breakout winner here I'm not surprised he went on to be, let's say, a B-list movie star. He carries the film, and he's got great chemistry with Vanessa Hudgens. She's pretty good, too. And I I just think overall, the teens, Ryan and Sharpay as well, they really got chemistry. They really light up the screen. You know, I I think the the movie also did a good job of making the Troy and Gabrielle characters just likable and sympathetic in line with the actors' performances. So... I think that their charm really holds up when, upon rewatch. Definitely. One other thing I wanted to throw in here or there about High School Musical 1. Something I liked about the status quo number when different characters from the different cliques are saying hobbies they have that are outside of what would be expected. There is a skater kid who says his hobby is to dress up in orchestra attire and play the cello which I wonder where he does that, where he's by himself. (laughs) But then when he's describing what he plays, one of his skater friends says, the saw? (laughs) And I I liked having a musical saw shout out because one of my things that I did in high school was play the musical saw. Not to rain on that parade, but I I think he was just commenting on the motion that the guy was doing. Like, it looks like he's sawing at that point, the music aspect coming out. I don't know if it was directly a call to a musical saw, but I I do appreciate that interpretation. I stand by that. It's a musical saw with the, you play a musical saw with a bow. I think it makes sense. And I want that saw playing skater boy to get the next high school musical spinoff movie, but no, they could do like a Kenobi. It's, you know, uh, a prequel show. If Star Wars can get 10, High School Musical can get two. I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely watch a, a spinoff of Musical Saw Guy. I love me a good stoner comedy. Maybe it could be like a stoner uh, comedy musical or something. Oh, man. It could be, yeah, like maybe not even a musical. Maybe it's like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It's just an 80s <laughs> teen movie that is taking place at the same school where other characters are high school musicaling. That's funny, yeah. Kind of like uh, Freaks and Geeks, the opening scene. It's like a long cut where it shows all these people who are kind of like glamorous high school people on the bleachers talking. And then it cuts down to Under the Bleachers where Seth Rogen and James Franco are talking about smoking pot and listening to death metal and stuff. Exactly. So another strength of this film that is a strength across all three movies is that directed and choreographed by Kenny Ortega of Newsies fame, as well as a couple of others. Hocus Pocus, if I'm not mistaken. The The musical numbers are, are really excellent, particularly anything where there's a big group, where it's ambitious. He's good at it. He's real good at it. Those, those numbers are all exciting. Stick to the status quo. We're all in this together. They're, they're fun and, uh, and well choreographed. So uh, I think that's a consistent strength throughout the series is that Ortega nails... The musical choreography aspects definitely especially if there's a lot of people like you said i also think the ending is maybe it's just nostalgia it kind of feels like lightning in a bottle to me like it's just really stirring and uplifting at the end i don't know 
I actually I know that maybe it's not perfect, but for me the this movie just kind of works overall. It's obviously not a perfect film. I think it's too long. It is a musical, but a lot of the numbers are short and there's only like six total songs. And so it's a hundred minute movie musical with like six real numbers. It really feels like a drag, honestly, when I was rewatching it. And even still, despite that drag, there are some things that happen like fast, like the friends changing heart. Oh, now they're going to support Gabrielle and Troy. That just kind of felt rushed. All of this kind of added up to a cheap TV movie, almost filler feeling for a lot of it, minus kind of the musical numbers and, and some of the scenes where it really leans on the, the teen's charm. So I think, you know, for what it was, a, a made-for-TV movie on a shoestring budget, it, it does admirably, but it is still that thing. I will say in my sophomore year talent show in 2006, I was part of an ensemble group that we did the dance most likely very poorly for <laughs> we're all in this together. And so as part of our multimedia experience of this episode, I'm going to dig out that VHS tape and digitize that clip. Oh boy, I'm excited. That's good. A couple of, I just had his notes of weird things about High School Musical because there's definitely some weird things. And the number one weird thing that is absolutely my favorite part of this movie, I think like legitimately one of the funniest things of pop culture in the 21st century is that Zac Efron, who's apparently so naturally charismatic as a singer that he wins it over the seasoned theater kids, he was not even good enough at singing that he did not sing any of his parts on the uh, vocal tracks for any of the songs. Apparently, so now the, the, the official line now is they wrote it as a baritone, a higher register baritone, which is too high for him, and he couldn't actually sing the parts, so they brought in a, uh, a studio stand-in to, to sing his lines. And there's like one part of the movie where Zac Efron himself is singing it, like when he's trying to win back Gabriella, and you can tell that maybe his... He has not had a lot of vocal training in his past, let's say. It is really weird, the dubbing or lip syncing. Somehow I didn't notice it back in the day. <laughs> like right from the beginning in the New Year's number, it was like, whoa, he's got this boy band voice coming out of his body. It's yeah. like the episode in The Simpsons where there's the, the covert <laughs> plot by the military to use a boy band as propaganda and they just take the normal kids like Barton Milhouse and slap a auto tune or whatever, some, <laughs> some algorithm audio processor over them. And it makes them great singers. That episode is called new kids on the black. It's one of my favorite episodes in part because it has NSYNC singing these ridiculous made up songs. I like the character of Lieutenant LT smash. <laughs> a couple of other weird things about this. I always wondered why were Sharpay and Ryan twins? I mean, I guess so that they could be like thick as thieves together. But if they're the co-leads, does that mean they play the romantic parts? Because it kind of seems like this is probably a romantic musical. What about other musicals where there's a romantic lead and a, a kiss scene? Do they play that? That's just is kind of ooky to me. Like, I don't know if I would want brother and sister doing that. I'm glad you brought that up because it is important. There is <laughs> some serious borderline or border crossing incesty vibes between Ryan and Sharpay. And I think they play it up. It's this, this whole thing is supposed to make your skin crawl. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Ryan, particularly that I'll say for my high school musical two notes in a moment here, but 
Yeah. Brian, you and I went to a magnet high school where everybody was academically ambitious. Uh, just by getting in, you were considered a strong student. People were all also really involved in various things and everybody, I would say more than your average high school, everybody is pretty geeky at the high school we went to. That said, you know, my experience might not be perfectly representative, but it felt way too hostile between the cliques. Like the whole stick to the status quo thing, that just, I don't know, did not seem remotely close to any memory I have of high school. People were free to roam between different groups and be a part of multiple identities. And friends weren't always 100% supportive, but it wasn't like this level of nastiness that Chad displays. I don't know. I think you're right. Uh, It maybe played that way in my conspiracy-leaning mind to just play up the message of breaking down the existing order. This is a a revolutionary film series. (laughs) Speaking of breaking free, that song, despite being no better than decent, in my opinion, I would maybe put it like the fourth best song that I actually want to re-listen to on this soundtrack. It reached number four on the Billboard and was a legitimate crossover hit, uh, which I just think is kind of fascinating how much of a zeitgeist this movie was. One or two more minor notes. I could tell the script was not written by someone who wanted to take the athletic parts seriously. For example, they're East High, and of course their opponents are West High, and their basketball team is just called the Hoopsters, which I do not think any real basketball team has ever been called the Hoopsters before. So I had never noticed the Hoopsters thing before this watch through, and it is very confusing to me. Because routinely they say wildcats. Right. And normally in my experience, that's how it works is it's the school team name applies to all the sports. So the basketball players would be wildcats. The baseball players would be wildcats. The football players would be wildcats. Is that true to your experience of high school? Yes. And again, I think speaks to the fact that this movie was likely written by Someone who was a drama kid and not an athlete in high school. Well, see, the, the thing is, I think because they routinely say they're going to be up against the West High Knights. So I think they are the Wildcats and maybe Hoopsters is some weird nickname. Maybe. I don't think it comes back past this movie. <laughs> and, and like I said, I had never noticed it before. So I wondered if Hoopsters was like a slang... Just something that specifically refers to the basketball team, even though the team name that they go and compete under is the is the Wildcats. Perhaps, yeah. A couple more anecdotes and I'll wrap this up. I think the next two will be a little shorter. This one has the most sentimental value, I would imagine, for both of us. And it ties in the most to the show, so. Yes, that's true, yeah. Uh, so one thing I've subsequently learned is that Corbin Blue, who plays Chad... Uh, the, the fellow athlete and best friend of Troy, who apparently had no experience in athletics other than dance and theater and was really uncomfortable like being a basketball player. Like he had to figure out how to dribble a basketball and things like that. And rewatching it, there are a few moments where he definitely stands out as awkward. Not as bad as he could have been for sure. And overall, I just think Gabriella is extremely unconvincing as a freaky smart girl, freaky genius girl or something. She's not convincing at that is all. She very much looks like someone who would be like the popular beauty queen. Troy is a little bit better as the basketball star, but he's like still fairly skinny and short compared to the other athletes. Like not believable that he would be MVP type. Yeah, not at basketball at least. He's a little too short for that. Yeah. Although Dan and I had a discussion a couple days back 
he said, these kids are really convincing as athletes and definitely not theater kids dancing around in jerseys. Sarcastically, of course. <laughs> to which I've replied, uh, I've watched enough musicals that, in this respect at least, my disbelief is suspended. <laughs> also, I've almost never played or watched a sport, so I'm easy to fool. There you go. Yeah, you don't watch this for the basketball realism. All right. that That's all my thoughts poured out about High School Musical 1. Do you have anything you want to add? No, I'm ready to roll into what came next. After the zeitgeist success of the first High School Musical, Disney promptly ordered a higher budget follow-up with the same cast and same director. I remember this being hyped all summer long in 2007. Just... Like every day they were playing the lead-in musical number. Uh, what time is it? Summertime. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting because the movie didn't finally come out until August 17th, when the summer was very nearly over, like the last week of it. It's funny you mentioned that. I was reading the Wikipedia article, and that actually got mentioned in the critical reception. People complained it was too close to fall to be a good summer movie. Oh, last thing to point out, though, is that this is the movie where it drives home. I mean, I guess it's it's only the second movie, so it's the only time that you would pick up on it. But seasons are a big theme in these movies. Each of the installments of High School Musical is a different season. The first film takes place in the winter. It starts on New Year's. Then the second one is all about summer vacation. Uh, we'll get to it, but the senior year installment number three is the spring featuring the prom. We never truly got a fall installment, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Sounds good. Yeah. So what's going on in this movie? Uh, it's the end of the school year, as Brian mentioned. It's it's summertime. Um, Sharpay has decided that she wants to seduce Troy because she envisions herself the big shot of the school and he's the big shot of the school. But Troy just wants to spend all summer with Gabriella. Sharpay, whose parents are apparently quite wealthy and on the board of the country club, get Troy a job, which he leverages into jobs for all of his classmates. So they're all working at this country club together. But tensions rise as Sharpay works to make the summer miserable for everyone other than Troy via her lackey, the club manager named Fulton, played by Mark L. Taylor. Meanwhile, Troy uses his favorite status with Sharpay and the preferential treatment he's getting at the country club to make connections that might shape his future. The University of Albuquerque coach and players meet him and there's talk of a scholarship. And that scholarship in particular is important to him as there are mentions that he his family is not financially well off and uh, his family is probably going to have a hard time paying for college. Sharpay's seduction attempt centers around getting Troy to perform in the club talent show with her at the end of the summer, though he's loath to be back on stage. I guess he skipped out on the spring musicale. Resentment from both Gabriella and Troy's friends towards Troy and his kind of privileged status here lead to a falling out. And meanwhile, Ryan turns his back on Sharpay, who has started taking him for granted during the summer. When Sharpay manages to lock out all of her peers, except for Troy and herself, from the talent show, Troy get, gets wind of it, and he turns her down, goes back to his friends and Gabriella, reconciles with them. On the night of the talent show, everyone is ultimately able to perform. Sharpay acknowledges her brother as they reconcile themselves. She gives him some 
award at the end of the talent show. And Gabriella and Troy reconnect and perform a song together on stage, despite Troy thinking that he's going to be performing that song with Sharpay. And just as the first movie end with, ended with all of them celebrating in a gym here, they all celebrate with a big pool party at the end. So that is the gist of High School Musical 2. It's actually a longer movie, but I think it feels a little bit less plotty because it has a lot more musical numbers. They're a little bit longer and more elaborate overall. I can hop into my reactions on this film. I think one obvious thing is that they got a bigger budget and that budget shows completely. The production values are way up from the original. I mentioned that there are more song numbers. They're much more elaborate and varied. Uh, There's a lot more variety in the songs and the choreography. And overall, it all holds up, I thought. I thought the musical numbers really held up well. Yeah, I thought they were strong and definitely a noticeable budget jump. There's only one scene at the very beginning that takes place in the school we've seen previously. Then the rest of the movie takes place at this posh New Mexico country club. And I thought that was kind of interesting because the first movie, and as we'll find out, the school where the series takes place is actually in Utah. It's not really in New Mexico. So that makes me wonder where this country club actually is, because it really, really looks like New Mexico or Arizona or something. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. It's got all these desert vistas. Not that Utah doesn't have desert vistas, but this really read as super southwestern. To that point, I think another strength of this movie is it just looks a lot better than the original. Particularly, they drown the visual look with luscious summer hues. You get the chlorine blues of the pools, the flamingo pinks, particular Sharpay is always dressed in something gaudy. A lot of it pink. She has this ridiculous pink convertible. And it feels like a full half of the budget must have gone into Sharpay's amazing array of outfits. She has this just ridiculous wardrobe throughout the entire film. This is really the Sharpay movie. She got a spinoff film that was literally just her but this feels like where she shines the most she certainly gets the biggest spotlight in this one seemed like they wanted to have her be the driver of the plot um i also appreciated that ryan came into his own as something more than just kind of a semi-bumbling sidekick of sharpay's and i actually thought that the baseball scene was not terrible i know i complained with you by i am about the basketball scenes in the first movie but i thought the The baseball here kind of worked okay. There's a baseball scene where Ryan is kind of connecting with a bunch of his schoolmates while Troy and Sharpay are kind of off on doing their own thing. So which had the better baseball scene? High School Musical 2 or Everybody Wants Some? (laughs) Good memory. I was actually thinking of mentioning that earlier when we were talking about quality of sports scenes. I mean, it's fine here, but I think it's way better in Everybody Wants Some which is kind of designed around leading to that. But yeah, that's episode three for uh, you, the goods neophytes. Although I have trouble listening back to that one because we were still getting used to our audio production quality and editing there. But Yeah, we had some technical hangups. Did you have any more kind of things that you enjoyed about this that you wanted to throw in there before I kind of rip it to shreds? No, <laughs> you can get ripping. So, honestly, the plot does not work for me very much at all. It feels like the producers took a bunch of decent sequel ideas, 
some tension between Gabrielle and Troy, some tension between Ryan and Sharpay, testing the breaking point of being all in this together and maybe just depicting some summer fun. Threw all those ideas into a, a blender, perhaps a writer's room, and ended up with a slurry of contrivances driven by bad communication, Sharpay manipulations, and undeserved resentment. All of which was not particularly enjoyable to watch for me from a plot perspective. So one thing that kind of reminds me of Star Wars, so that the Empire Strikes Back, Darth Vader is basically depicted to be the Emperor's number two. And then you just kind of take that for granted when you go and watch the original A New Hope. Oh yeah, that's that's who Darth Vader is. And you can watch the movie in that context. But if you watch that movie kind of trying to forget everything you knew about Darth Vader from the later movies and just watch A New Hope, he does not seem like a, a number two guy. He seems like this kind of weird, wild card, special agent type guy. The reason I bring up this comparison is because Ryan and Sharpay being rich, I'm sh- pretty sure is never mentioned in the first movie. And it's very easy to watch that movie, assuming they're rich. But I think it makes them a worse character. I think I like in High School Musical 1 how she just thinks she's this hotshot just out of sheer confidence. Like she has no, it's not like she has more money or more power. She just like imagines herself this diva. And I think actually having her be rich and Machiavellian makes her less interesting and enjoyable character. It also makes me wonder why she's even going to public school if she's rich enough to like completely control the wealthy country club. I don't know. It's a good question. Her power level seems to be at markedly different points in each of the three films. It's like in the first one, she is a big wheel in the drama program. Like that's where her click is and that's where she holds sway. Then in the second one, you know, she's positioned as having authority over everybody, basically being the queen just because of where they are and that she's suddenly super rich, apparently. Then in the third one, it's kind of scaled back a little bit, but it is played up that she is like the girl all the boys love. Like there's a scene where she's walking in and they're all like doing cartoonish double takes, like Tex Avery stuff. Right. Which was not present in the first one. Agreed. There's even a line, Sharpay's kind of cute, a mountain lion's also cute or something like that that is in the first one and is also later referenced in the uh, the TV series. But yeah, I agree. So another thought on this. Maybe I'm biased as like an adult with kids who wants like my kids to thrive. I really feel like Troy's friends mistreated him and not vice versa. First of all, they should have been grateful. He got them a job. They were like talking about how were they going to get money? I don't know, but he 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 like managed to get all of them a job, like like twenty people jobs, and they barely even give a thank you. It's like, oh yeah, we get to get to chill out and relax this whole summer. No, you just got a new job, and like when he gets all these opportunities, he's the MVP to like audition or I mean uh, practice with the college athletes. Like talk of getting a real scholarship, Chad is once again resentful here. He's like, oh, you should have invited me. I can't believe you're turning your back on us. Like, what the hell, dude? Like, be happy for your friend. Encourage your friend. I was I was really mad at everyone other than Troy. Like, if if my friend was getting these opportunities, if Gauntley all of a sudden got, like, negotiations to be picked up by NBC or something, 
I would be happy for you, man. I wouldn't say, oh, make sure you got to bring the critic along too. I would just be excited for you. Well, thank you, Dan. Yes, there's crab mentality at work here. Is that a psychosocial buzzword you're familiar with? No, I'm not. Okay, so just like I brought up the principle of propinquity a couple episodes back, the principle of crab mentality refers to the alleged behavior that if you put one crab in a bucket, it can climb out over the side and get away. But if you put many crabs in a bucket, when one starts rising up, the others will grab onto it and pull it back down. It refers to, in practice, the principle that people who work together or are part of a community together will resist one of the group becoming more successful than the others. Oh yeah, perfectly apt. And in some ways that almost feels like a counter for the theme of the original. Like, I don't know, maybe not. Like the original is obviously very much about breaking down barriers and having equity amongst everyone. But here kind of turns into this nastiness where they're like, no man, you got to stick with your the present with the people you know, with the good stuff you know. I didn't really think about that, but it is almost kind of a thematic mirror. Yeah, it's almost verging on like Harrison Bergeron. Like you got to hold back the exceptional. You have to <laughs> chain them down. Here's a thing that's not a complaint, but it's something that I've been kind of alluding to here, which High School Musical 2 is the one where for me it really stands out. I think Ryan, throughout all the movies, particularly High School Musical 2, is coded to be gay without being explicitly gay, which ameliorates some of the queasiness of his relationship with Sharpay. Like if he's completely gay, then that makes that just a little bit less awkward. I I think it's pretty clearly in every way intended to be that way to the point that I Googled it. Kenny Ortega, the director of the high school musical movies appeared in a podcast or magazine interview or something and said, he and the writer talked about it prior to the first high school musical and they both decided that he was gay, but that they would not explicitly acknowledge it throughout the duration of the series unless something changed because 2006, the public acceptance and embracement of same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships was still very much in an evolving state and I think would have been viewed as very controversial. And so that coding apparently was indeed intended. I think you're right that he is meant to be read that way. But I also think it's funny that in two, we meet their parents, Sharpay and Ryan's parents, and immediately they play up the uncomfortable interaction between Ryan and the mom also. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. I did appreciate that. That's a good point. I guess I was just thinking he kind of has this arc of alienation here. And I know that's mostly via his relationship with his sister deteriorating, but he just kind of seems disconnected from everything. And like, like he doesn't quite fit in and he has to figure out how to fit in while being himself. That lines up thematically with him being gay, I suppose. Yeah, I can see that. Did you have anything else you wanted to add about this movie? No, I, I'm <laughs> ready for chapter three. All right. High School Musical 3 subtitled Senior Year, if I'm not mistaken. So, with High School Musical 1 and High School Musical 2, both runaway Disney Channel original movie successes and subsequently DVD successes, director Kenny Ortega sends the cast out in style in a theatrical release with one last show. This would prove to be a huge financial success. I sent you the numbers at one point. I think the budget was maybe $11 million and it made $250 million. 
something along those lines. So crazy successful. Yeah. Although I do want to point out that if you research this, the original plan for the third High School Musical installment was to be the fall-themed chapter. They were going to make it a Halloween movie. Some have said it was planned to be called Haunted High School Musical. I don't know how official that is. But I think it would have been interesting to see Kenny Ortega return to his Hocus Pocus Halloween roots. Oh, that would have been cool. I had seen that note. Man, that would have been fun if they had done that. I agree. I I really like spooky and Halloween themed things, especially if it's something normal that gets to do something spooky and fun and you get minor key music in there and surprises and oh, is this thing really haunted? That that had the potential to be fun. I completely agree. Right. I, I think it could have worked and they still could have had the final chapter be the spring chapter. Just make it High School Musical 4. I think the issue they probably ran into is that they just didn't have the time to do all that and maybe not the money. Yeah. When they have to wrangle this large ensemble of increasingly prominent teen stars. Right. That was actually a, uh, a prominent issue creating this was that Zac Efron was getting offers to be in all sorts of quote unquote real movies. And he wanted more money from High School Musical 3. He wanted like half the budget just to be his salary which honestly makes sense to the extent that you cannot do this movie without Troy more than any other cast member. I would say Gabriella and Sharpay and Ryan are also like pretty essential, but really you cannot do it without Troy. But apparently they negotiated it down to the realm of about a quarter of the budget. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think you're right. You're, you hit it on the, the nose of why they couldn't do a fourth is the big ensemble and their rising fame. So, what happens in this movie? It opens with Troy once again orchestrating an unlikely state basketball title. In the subsequent celebration, he begins to confront the difficult question of what's next, along with his buddies and his girlfriend, Gabriella. A couple thoughts here before I dive into the rest of the plot. One, the shots of... I mean, we'll get into the production values in general, but the opening sequence of the basketball title game is really cool. And like way more high tech and interesting than any of the stuff from the first, even the second movie. Like it's kind of floating, following Troy as he arranges this game winning assist. I, I really enjoyed that. Like weird focus things going on as his sweat drips off. That's one thought. Thought number two, they immediately start talking about like next year and oh, we got to get scholarships when they had just been ragging on Troy in the previous film for doing that exact thing. It bothered me because I watched these basically consecutively. That was a little bit of a whiplash for me. Come on, man. You got to enjoy the present. You got to think about now. High School Musical 3 opens. Oh, wait. Let's all think about our futures now. But I guess that's the way trilogies go. Anyways, what's next for Gabriella is that she has been accepted to Stanford. Troy has been accepted to the University of Albuquerque, where he plans to play basketball. Although he is not quite sure if that is, in fact, right for him. He's He's... Notes a couple times he's received offers from other places. Kelsey, who's written the musical numbers throughout the series thus far, she's played by Olesia Rulin. Uh, she ropes the gang into one last spring musicale, which will be based on the characters themselves and their senior year. Ms. Darbus, the drama teacher, shares that Juilliard, the famous performing arts school, has one scholarship available to the members of the drama program and four people will be competing for this one scholarship. That is 
Ryan, who does the choreography, Sharpay, the lead actress, and Kelsey, the songwriter, um, and they'll be competing for this. I got to say, I don't think that scholarships really work this way. I mean, there are some where you have to like apply and compete for it, but like this level of direct competition among peers for a specific thing, like it's the Hunger Games, I don't think that that's a real thing. Yeah, at least I don't think the school would be that upfront about <laughs> it if that's how it worked. Agreed. It would be more of a backroom deal. It it does provide some good conflict and tension, but uh, maybe not the most realistic. This whole production has a higher budget once again. It's a theatrical release, it, and even just the cinematography looks different because of it. Completely agree, yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was surprised how little the budget was. Like, for an $11 million movie, considering the first one was made in something like $4 million or $5 million, I can't remember what the exact number was, this is just a leap to the next level. That guy could bang for their buck. So, as this musical is being arranged, everyone is also making prom arrangements. And two underclassmen are named understudies. One is Sharpay's new assistant, Tiara. And another is the unlikely basketball hero who's nicknamed Rocket Man. I think he has another name too, but they just keep calling him Rocket Man. He's the one who scored the basket on an assist from Troy to win the title game. I have to say I'm a fan of the trope where when you're getting close to the end of a show that you have these like up and comer. This this world is going to continue to exist and this is going to be the new Sharpay and the new Troy. Yeah, that's kind of fun. I agree. Like, I know that the fourth Indiana Jones is not very popular. I saw, I've seen it one time and I remember enjoying it when I watched it, but maybe that would be a good future episode for the goods. But one thing that that one does is it has Shia LaBeouf play. I think his name is Mutt Williams and he's implied to be, I can't remember the specifics suggested or perhaps directly uh, labeled Indiana Jones's son or at least successor. And it kind of seems to be like one of the ideas was transitioning Indiana Jones into the Shia LaBeouf character, which never actually happened and will not happen at this point. But I thought that that was a fun idea. I agree with you. I think that's a good trope. Yeah, I think that would be a good one to cover. I've definitely got some thoughts about Indiana Jones 4 and what 5 could potentially be. So someday. Yeah, that would be good. And the counterpoint to that is when they unrealistically have the same group of people together infinitely like the the office it just becomes increasingly ridiculous that all of these people would still be employed like even when a couple people leave the vast majority of people are employed for like nine years straight uh just doesn't necessarily make sense but anyways continuing here as they're getting ready for prom gabriella is accepted into an honors program which means she has to miss the big show and will also end up missing prom and graduation But Troy surprises her at the Stanford campus and holds an impromptu one-on-one prom. He convinces her to return for their show. And though they miss the first act, which kicks off some cast reshuffling that puts Rocketman and Tiara on stage, they do make it back for the second act. And as part of that, Tiara betrays Sharpay, where she reveals her own Sharpay-esque instincts of taking center stage. The show we witness, which by the way has, well, I'll talk, actually, you know what? I'm going to hold off on my talk about the meta, weird, diegetic elements of this film. Just trust that this is very surreal to the point of almost becoming confusing how often 
you can't really tell what's in the show and what's not. Agreed, yeah. I'm going to expand on that a little bit as we talk about the show, but I agree with Brian, as this movie in particular plays around with the blurry edges of a musical being something where people spontaneously break out into song in unrealistic ways, and a musical being something that you perform on stage in, in very interesting ways. Well, also the show that they are putting on is called Senior Year. It just made me think, you know, screw the underclassmen. It's like, presumably <laughs> there are other actors beyond the ones that we've been following this whole time who also want to have roles. But now the show is not just starring the seniors. It is literally about the seniors playing <laughs> themselves. Yeah, it's pretty to, wild. To, to the point that when they're like auditioning, I, I feel like there's discussion of Sharpay or somebody going out for the part of Gabriella or something. It's like they're, gonna, <laughs> they're discussing playing not just themselves, but potentially playing each other. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. Very weird. It is weird. But at the end of the show, they announce on stage, which again felt unrealistic. I feel like you wouldn't do like a live reveal like the end of American Idol. But they reveal that Oh, it turns out there's not just one scholarship. There's two for Ryan, the choreographer, and Kelsey, the show writer and songwriter. They both get scholarships to Juilliard and honestly, both very much deserved it. Like the numbers are legitimately impressive, both in their musical writing, but especially in the choreography. Ryan absolutely deserved that. Or I guess Ryan is a stand in for Kenny Ortega here, who, by the way, is is out as gay. Uh, and was one of an early director who was publicly out as gay. So Ryan as a stand-in for Kenny is uh, not the worst possible one. Oh. Troy also announces on stage, which again feels excessively dramatic, that he has decided not to go to the University of Albuquerque and, and will instead go to Cal Berkeley, where he can play basketball and perform on stage and be very close to Gabriella. Sharpay decides she's going to stick around at the University of Albuquerque theater program and will help out East High's drama program, in part as like a way to keep an eye and get revenge on Tiara. Later on, we jump to graduation. Troy is giving a speech. He calls back the trilogy's roots of how they all learned to stick together and how it might not have happened if Gabriella hadn't waltzed into their lives. That also makes me think of shortly after the movie came out, Zac Efron was the celebrity guest on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember this? No. And one of his sketches was him giving a commencement speech at East High, but as like their guest speaker. Like he comes back as an alum to give the guest speech. He says, I need to warn you, there is no singing in college. <laughs> in fact, as far as I can tell, this is the nation's only singing high school. <laughs> and we need to link that in our supplemental media That's as good. well. That's good, yeah, yeah. So that wraps up High School Musical 3 senior year. Um, a few reactions I had. One, as mentioned, production values are better than ever. The musical numbers and how elaborate they are are just jaw-droppingly good and varied in their the way they're set up. Uh, my favorite might be the prom number, which transitions into actually being on the stage, probably the weirdest moment where the diegesis of the film becomes blurry. Are they on stage or are they just breaking into song? There's also like this one that is at like a car junkyard and the cars kind of come alive. 
there's just a whole bunch of them and it's it's all really impressive my favorite was probably i want it all which is the big sharpay and ryan number in this one but it ends up roping in everybody and there's like eight different mise-en-scenes just the the set keeps changing there's like a tropical island and the inside of a jet and broadway itself and just all these huge set pieces like the statue of liberty comes out of the ground that's right and yeah all of the main characters are in these elaborate costumes like there's vanessa hudgens as this over-the-top flight attendant like one of them is like an islander at a tiki bar there's this moment where Zac Efron really gets to shine with his comedic chops, where he, in this interpretation, this fantasy that Sharpay is having on stage as a Sharpay fanboy, and he jumps up and has to be like hustled away by her bodyguards. It's like, Sharpay, I love you. <laughs> that's right. That's a that's an excellent one, too. I like how they're all like fantasy versions of themselves, the way that Sharpay would imagine them to be want them to be right i also just found the the plot to be like a little bit looser and kinder overall to the characters they're all kind of in better spirits here makes it a more pleasant watch than high school musical 2 it's not conflict averse but it doesn't feel quite as contrived or like forced in the terms of the conflict maybe just because it's depicting the coming of age routines i don't know i also enjoyed how much fan service there was, especially the last 20 minutes. Like the whole last 20 minutes of this movie are basically just talking about how great high school musical has been and how much it loves its fans and how we've been on this journey together. Like the graduation becomes of course, a very obvious metaphor for the end of the series. I got to say it worked for me. I liked it. I enjoyed it. It's maybe over the top in terms of fan service. Like, did a, this trilogy deserve that amount of fan service in its conclusion? Maybe not, but I enjoyed it. The last song is literally called High School Musical, and they hoist this huge marquee that says High School Musical. And I wondered why, because the name of the show they're putting on is Senior Year. So, I, I don't know. <laughs> Very... We're through the looking glass at this point. Yeah, I agree. So a couple of things I did not like about this movie. I think Sharpay gets the short shrift as compensation for the previous movie. It's like a big correction course on that. She just gets kind of screwed over. She was up for the scholarship. And because Troy wanted to do his like prom or whatever, they don't even tell Sharpay that Rocket Man's appearing. I guess someone does try to, to tell her that. But like she gets kind of surprised by it and it ruins the whole number and her shot at the scholarship. So I felt bad for her. Obviously, I guess she was hoisted on her own petard of arrogance, but I did feel like she, she got a little underserved here. And the ending is that she's going to be a teacher, which I don't know if that really plays into her dreams of fame and fortune very right. well. Agreed. I also think, although I'm with you on the bringing in new characters as like the replacements, as I was watching this time, I like had trouble remembering anything about them except that Tiara is kind of always there and Rocket Man. Oh, and she's British and Rocket Man is kind of doofy and thinks a lot of himself. So, you know, maybe now that I'm thinking about it, they kind of had some personality, but I feel like I want a little more of them, although I'm not sure I wanted the movie to be any longer. They're pale imitations for sure. 
but I like the implication that the world goes on. Right. I had a couple other of like astray observations. Is there any strengths or weaknesses that you wanted to shout out that we haven't talked about yet? No, I, I like that it happened. Just that they were able to throw a little more money and get returns on that this time around. Agreed. So my first stray observation is one that I was... Okay, let me frame this for you. Two weeks ago, I was thinking about us getting ready to watch this, and I was revisiting High School Musical stuff to get myself in the mindset to rewatch the series. And I rewatched a bunch of songs, including some from High School Musical 3, and I watched one, and I was like, holy crap, they're doing the Inception effect. And I messaged it to Brian, except either I didn't actually message it to him, or... I hit enter on my work computer, which is not always reliable, like with connection with the Facebook Messenger API. But the point was, like, I thought I was excited to, like, share something with Brian that he would appreciate that, like, the spinning room effect that's, like, the centerpiece action from Inception was previewed two years earlier. And then uh, as we were watching it, he I'm to me, he's like, hey, this is crazy. Look how the uh, Inception effect is uh, redone in High School Musical 3. I was like, oh, damn, I feel like you stole my thunder. So, <laughs> Well, you still ended up getting to see, say it. So uh, <laughs> I guess that's what you were digging for. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, did, I did make a note of that. Yeah, there's a song in this one where Troy is running through the school and he's like alone and things start distorting. And yeah, the hallway starts spinning around and he's going from wall to ceiling. And I feel like Nolan must have been watching this and. <laughs> And just yeah. ripped off Ortega. That's of course what it was. It's all that number is also cool. Basketballs rain from the ceiling. Uh, it does some fun stuff in that one. The other thing I was going to mention about the Inception effect is that I really appreciated last year. Uh, Billie Eilish, the musician, performed her song "Bad Guy" on SNL, and they recreated a version of the rotating room effect. Although they actually had the camera rotate with the room and not vice versa. So the effect is not that the room is rotating, but that Billie Eilish is rotating. So like she starts standing on the floor and then as she's dancing, she kind of goes to the corner and then she's dancing on the, the sideways wall and then she's dancing on the ceiling and the song ends with her back on the ground. Like it did one full rotation in the three and a half minutes. But the really impressive thing is that was recorded live for SNL in front of a national audience, they pulled that off. I thought that was really cool. I don't know if you've seen that clip. Wow. I got to watch that one too. Throw it in our multimedia <laughs> section. A couple of other stray observations. Interesting how the song We're All in This Together was in the musical when it was a non-diegetic number in the first movie. So it was like something they broke out into song, but now it's actually a song that Kelsey has written for the musical. That was one of the more weird uh, moments for me. Yeah, who who first became aware of this song? <laughs> did Kelsey write it, or did they have some kind of shared subconscious memory of it? Speaking of Kelsey, I think that she should have been in the... There's like a whole bunch of climactic things they do with like the leads. And they get, they get Troy and Gabriella, Ryan and Sharpay, Taylor and Chad, but Kelsey's not there. I guess like you lose the two-person symmetry, but I feel like she was as important as Taylor if not more so. I agree, but those are the core six that are on all the posters, so that's who you got to focus on. That's true. I guess so. 
The last kind of interesting note here. Right around the time that this was filming, Vanessa Hudgens was among the first notable victims of hacking into iPhone. And she had apparently taken provocative and nude pictures of herself that were then leaked to the media. And we didn't really know how to react to it at that point. And it kind of turned into blaming her. In fact, Disney released a statement saying she obviously made an error in judgment and there was calls for her to be dismissed from the cast and to replace her or just not include her in the third movie. Nowadays, when this is a more common occurrence and everybody is a little bit more acquainted with the concept of sexting and like having ownership of your body and how you can use it, the discourse has changed from she wouldn't be blamed, she would be considered a victim. And I completely agree what you do with you and your friends and your boyfriend or girlfriend and on the camera and your phone that's your business and if somebody hacks that you're the victim you didn't do anything wrong there i mean i guess it's because she was a family tv icon at that point but it's kind of an interesting bit of culture retrograde looking back on the the backstory of that yeah at the same time i try not to leave a paper trail that's a good point if you're prudent you won't leave that paper trail you'll use snapchat deletes the photos half hour after they're opened or whatever Okay, that wraps up my notes on High School Musical 3. Anything you wanted to add? No, I'm glad you pulled in the Inception thing, because I, <laughs> I did mean to talk about that. I'm glad it's out there now. I shouldn't have been so defensive on it, but <laughs> it is what it is. Uh, moving on. The epic continues. Sharpay's yeah, I think fabulous... this may be our first three-hour episode. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure, the spinoff. So following the conclusion of the High School Musical trilogy, I think in 2011, so this would be three years after High School Musical 3, Sharpay was given her own straight-to-DVD spinoff that was later then aired on Disney Channel, and I think is still considered in the canon of Disney Channel original movies, although I'm not 100% sure on that. I think it is. Uh, uh, Wikipedia said it was the first one that came to DVD first, but is part of the DCOM lineup. As the insiders call it. Let's just dive into it, I guess. Sharpay is now a year removed from high school graduation. Her destiny in High School Musical 3 apparently completely retconned, taking kind of a year off. She performs a local show with her dog named Boy, who has been appearing since the second movie. It's spelled B-O-I. Boy is played by Kenny Ortega's own dog named Manly Little Pickles Ortega. That's great. (laughs) So this show catches the eye of a Broadway producer who happens to be in town. And the Broadway producer approaches Sharpay and says, you should come audition on Broadway. Sharpay's dad, though, is hesitant, uh, but ultimately allows her to move out to New York to try the Broadway dream. But for exactly one month, she has a one month limit on it. She tries to rent out this New York penthouse, but they refuse to allow her to stay with her dog. So she's back out on the street where she's kind of wallowing with no plans. Um, her family friend, an aspiring documentarian named Peyton, and he's played by Austin Butler, finds her on the streets and begins filming her as sort of a classic New York dreamer who's struggling. He gets Sharpay a studio apartment in his own building, which is, of course, not a glamorous penthouse, but... The small and dreary New York apartment. And uh, she does ultimately spruce it up 
with Peyton's help, and they begin forming a little bit of a connection. She goes to her Broadway audition, but when she arrives, she learns that the producer wasn't talking about her auditioning. The producer wanted Boy the Dog to audition for a Broadway musical that will apparently include a live dog. Sharpay is not up for consideration in this. Boy's competition for the part is this other dog named Countess, owned by a sort of smarmy 12-year-old guy named Roger, played by Bradley Stephen Perry. So they're kind of competing for this dog Broadway role. Sharpay seeks to win favor with the show's star, her idol, Amber Lee, which seems to be the key to getting the part, whoever Amber Lee works better with and recommends. And this results in Sharpay first taking a job as Amber Lee's assistant, which becomes increasingly demeaning as Amber Lee asks her to do more and more stuff. As Boy and Countess work and audition, they fall in puppy love together. And we get to see Amber Lee's true narcissism coming into view. Sharpay discovers Amber Lee's plot to get both Boy and Countess booted from the musical. Sharpay concocts a scheme to sort of unmask Amber Lee's shallowness and nastiness to the public, which works during this sort of like open screening preview thing. And when she gets embarrassed, Amber Lee resigns from the play and the producers have to cancel the play. Just in time, her one month is up and her star prospects seem to be at an end. But Peyton, the documentarian who's been filming Sharpay frequently during this month, who lives across the, the building with her, from her, shows the Broadway producers some of his footage of Sharpay performing a number from the show. And she, of course, does a very good job with it. And the producers seeing it are inspired to hold the show. They offer that lead role to Sharpay, who agrees on the condition that both dogs can co-star. Sharpay and Peyton act on their romantic tension and kiss, and the movie ends with opening night. All of Sharpay's superstar fantasies have been fulfilled. And I noticed in the Wikipedia article, it mentioned an extra scene, not in Disney+, Plus, where uh, Ryan comes to make a visit to Sharpay and congratulate her on the good luck. So I, I YouTubed that scene. It's not in Disney+, Plus, but... I wonder why that would be cut out. Yeah, I don't know. It it made it seem like it was a bonus for the DVD or something like that, but it actually was like in the movie for the DVD. And okay. I noticed when you look it up on YouTube, like it starts where you're seeing the credits and it's like kind of a post-credit sequence, but it doesn't like completely fill the frame. The credits are still sort of running. Gotcha. Oddly, this movie is much less of a musical than the others. There are a few diegetic musical numbers that Sharpay performs when she's on stage and that are part of this girl and her best friend dog musical show. But other than that, there's there's no break into song moments. We actually get some existing pop music as background music, which, yeah, I... which threw me a little bit. I think uh, it's uh, Walking on Sunshine, but I think it might have actually been a cover by Ashley Tisdale. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, that's interesting. I do really like the song Walking on Sunshine. Agreed. If only because it's Fry's favorite song on Futurama. Ah, that's a great one for sure. I know some people don't like it because it is so relentlessly cheery, but I love it. So a couple of my observations on this one. I was expecting to hate this movie. I kind of lost interest in Sharpay as a character uh, sometime around the start of the second movie. 
But I got to say that Ashley Tisdale did a really good job carrying the film on her own. She gives the cartoonist Sharpay character some needed shading to be a lead character. She kind of has her crisis of faith and in her own talents. And I think Tisdale plays it pretty well. Uh, I also thought that she and Butler, the actor who played Peyton, do have pretty good chemistry on stage. And I actually kind of found his fascination with her as a documentary subject kind of plausible. It seemed like if you were to describe it to me, it would sound ridiculous, if not exploitative. But I actually thought it kind of worked. And I think the movie is best when they are on screen together. I also just think that the script itself is like really quippy. It's jokier than the first three high school musical movies are. Um, Charpe gets a lot of like really good lines about like kind of her entitled attitude and like good zingers in there, which I enjoyed. So I, <laughs> I don't know quite what to make of this. This movie has got a different writer and director from all the previous ones. Uh, and I wonder if <laughs> who may have been in the lineup who might've been a reactionary but I think it's worth noting that in the first three, they never lean into it super fully, but Sharpay is paired with Zeke, a basketball player who is black, and they, they don't build that relationship very much. But I see it as part of the message of Break Down the Barriers. And then here in this one, they've got her paired with this <laughs> Aryan dreamboat. Yeah. Like this, this tall, blonde, blue-eyed god of a man. Exactly. And Zeke is never mentioned. No, no name dropping. Troy may be moving out to California <laughs> for Gabriella, but but not here. Yeah. That is a it's a good caveat. I should have emphasized this more. It's very different from the other high school musicals. Uh and you can feel it. It it kind of just feels appropriately like a totally different spin-off. And it has the feel of a DCOM, a DCOM. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Uh, where it's not quite the same big budget show-stopping numbers uh, musical. It's more of like a genial comedy with a couple of musical things in it. That said, I think there are some definite weaknesses in the film. I really felt like the movie loses steam around the time that there's the dog Broadway auditions and this new plot thread of a rivalry with, with a 12-year-old. And it's not until like the last 15 minutes when Sharpay starts standing up to Amber Lee that this movie kind of really hits its stride again, I thought. So this obnoxious character of the young boy, precocious kid with the trained dog, uh, reminded me a lot. <laughs> this anecdote is going to take us a little into the weeds. I, th I thought a lot about my own connection to theater while watching these movies. And at one point in high school... There was a competition that a couple of my friends wrote plays for and got their plays produced. And so I went to the night of all the one act plays that they were featured at in DC. And one was by this middle schooler. I don't remember exactly what he looked like, but in my head, it was just like this kid. And the kid's name was Forrest Penrod. <laughs> What a name. And so that's exactly, I guess in the movie, his name is Roger, but I was just thinking Forrest Penrod the whole time. Speaking of names and just great names that just conjure an image. I always thought it was interesting that the character who is the best friend of Troy is named 
Chad Danforth, which is like, to me, sounds like the rich, snobby white boy name, like a really strong one. But instead, he's like the tough athlete. He's black. You know, I don't know. Like, didn't really, I didn't feel like the character fit the name very well. But I think Forrest Penrod's even better than Chad Danforth, though. (laughs) I've also met a Chandler Edgington. Oh, that's good, too. A few stray thoughts on Sharpay's spinoff before we get to the main course here. One like really dopey thing about this movie is that I didn't even understand it. Is So Sharpay and her dog at the audition do this number. It's actually a good song. I thought it was maybe the best one original in the film about me and my boy, which makes sense. The dog's name is Boy. But then the 12-year-old comes on with his dog, Countess, and immediately does the same song, but gender flipped, Me and My Girl. And I like, is this an actual song from the musical? Is it a Sharpay original that this guy ripped off? I guess the idea is that it's something from the, the actual musical, but it really sucked the momentum out of the film that you get this nice number and then you immediately have to repeat it with the new annoying 12-year-old and, and his dog. Didn't they do exactly the same thing in High School Musical 1, though? Yeah, that we see um, Ryan and Sharpay and then we see Troy and Gabriella. Excellent point. I feel like that one works because they're like distinctly different styles. And that's like the point of it. Also, the song is like 30 seconds in that. Whereas here it's like two minutes and it's like basically the same style here. But maybe you're right. Maybe it's just a reference to that. And the idea is it's like supposed to be evoking that central plot point of High School Musical. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for, although you're good to call out that it didn't work as well here. One last thought. So you know that I sometimes like to play counterfactual, do some some rewrites in my head as I watch these movies. Mm -hmm. Here's my proposed rewrite for this movie. I don't know if it would be a better movie or not. I actually don't know. Let's have, instead of an an annoying 12-year-old as the Broadway competitor for the dog spot, have it be a different male who's like Sharpay's age and very much has Sharpay's attitude. So it's like the male Sharpay counterpart, not like the the foil, the way that Peyton is kind of like the straight man version. And then you could have these increasingly like ridiculous, like it would maybe make it more fun to have these increasingly ridiculous, but also like fraught with romantic tension competitions between them to like outdo each other and one up each other, not just have it be this, conniving little 12 year old guy then you either get rid of or rewrite Peyton I don't know maybe the family friend is like an older woman now not like some guy that she strikes up a romance with and you have some other way rather than a documentary of getting the producers to discover her I don't know I think it would have been fun to see um, not a straight man Sharpay foil but a equally over the top character I guess Ryan is kind of like that in the original but he kind of is still more of a sidekick I don't know I like that. I'd watch it. All right. That wraps up my thoughts on the Sharpay spinoff, which brings us to the conclusion of the preview portion of this episode. From one, from best to worst, how would you rank these four movies? And also what scores would you give them on our signature ranking system and section? Is it good? Oh, man. I think one cemented its place in the zeitgeist best it's a little uh, artificial, but I, I just think it's got the most oomph. You know, the, the only the subsequent films only exist because of the legacy of the first one. 
So I think I'll rank that first, followed by three, which had the big budget push behind it. Everybody's just in top form as far as cinematography, production design, choreography. So really strong elements in that one. Two, not as high, but I like that they got out of the school, showed some new things. It's clear that the budget is higher. And then Sharpay a ways below that. There's just less substance to it. I think they knew that that was an addendum. So to throw number values at it, maybe I put number one, uh, number one, good. Number one is a five out of eight, good. Number two is a, no, sorry. Number three is a high four, good-ish. Number two is a low four, good-ish. And uh, Sharpay, standalone, high three, not not good. We're pretty much of the same mindset here. My ranking is exactly the same. I actually really struggled after I watched three. Like, is it better than the first? But I think it suffers in the sense that it is completely dependent upon the previous two movies to exist. And that brings it down enough that even though the first is cheaper and more flawed and a little more artificial feeling and the production values aren't anywhere near as good, I have both of them as high goods. They're neck and neck for me, but I have number one uh, higher overall, maybe strictly on sentimental value, um, but also for kind of standing on its own. I think two is a good-ish for sure. Um, I think my qualms with it are overcome by the enjoyability of the musical numbers and just the visual joy of watching these people having fun in the summer, these bright hues, doing crazy dance routines, over the top, silly fun. That overcomes enough the my, my issues with the plotting and the characterization, although not enough to bring it up to the same tier as the others. And I also have the Sharpay movie at Not Not Good. Wasn't the train wreck that I was honestly expecting still completely disposable. So I think we're in the, the same boat in general. I, I, I think I ranked the uh, one and three, maybe just a hair higher than you. And now for the main event. <laughs> Last thought, Brian. Did you ever crush on any of these characters when you were in college and high school? Hmm. I can be honest. I always had a thing for Kelsey. I wanted more Kelsey uh, action on screen. She did get a lot more in the third movie, but uh, I found her kind of adorable. And I like the idea of this like kind of meek girl who's like creating these really elaborate and impressive musicals like by herself. It's just really impressive. Oh, yeah, definitely. She's cute. Uh, she rocks the glasses, which I mean, I've heard it said guys don't make passes at girls in glasses, but I feel like it's kind of like a beard. Like if they're really hot underneath, you know, guys with beards, if they're really hot underneath, that's, that's the requirement to make yeah. the, the uh, affectation work. It's like, a, I don't know, a librarian thing, but yeah, I don't remember at the time feeling that way about anybody on the <laughs> cast, uh, except I think it's got to be said in two, the Sharpay pool number is, memorable there's a lot of legs on display in that one <laughs> that's true that's a good point yeah without sounding skeevy I, I suppose 
if you were of a, a certain age when that came out, part of the appeal was seeing these stars uh, in their swimsuits with their skin skin out there. Right. I think it's important to say we were younger than these actors at this point when these movies came out. That's true, uh, yeah. At least in the first one. I, I didn't look up all the ages. Ashley Tisdale was 21. So. Oh, wow, okay. But you know what they say about high school girls? When I get older, they stay the same age, so. At least one person says that, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm determined to get a Dazed and Confused reference into every episode we do. So. <laughs> I think I'm about 50% on that right now if you go back and listen. But All right. So now we get to the main course. And that all was good preparation, good context, good background for High School Musical, the musical, the series. Are you okay with me jumping into this now, Brian? Please do. So when Disney Plus, the big Disney streaming service that was in the works for several years, began planning its rollout and some of the content that would be a part of its rollout, the higher-ups conceived of a scripted high school musical series being part of that. And they hired Tim Ferdell. I don't know if it's pronounced Ferdell or Ferdella. So he's an author. I actually didn't know that I owned a couple of his books. He wrote some cocktail recipe books themed around literary works and movies called Tequila Mockingbird, which is a clever name. He also has written young adult novels and has been involved in some playwriting and stuff, but he does not have a huge presence on uh, running TV shows, so he's kind of an interesting choice. But they got him to come up with an idea for this scripted show, and he ultimately decided on a mockumentary of a high school staging the original high school musical film. And I think now is a good time to dig a little deeper into a couple things that we've talked about, about some of the weird meta storytelling edges of the high school musical trilogy we've already kind of touched on some of them for example in high school musical which by the way is a musical about a high school aimed at being a musical for high schoolers we never actually see the high school musical we just see the auditions for it which is kind of a little bit of a brain warp if you haven't thought about it before Right. I think the characters that they are auditioning for in High School Musical 1 are named something like Arthur and Minnie, <laughs> and it's never said again. But I, I want to know what happens in that show. Yeah, and like what these songs ended up sounding like, the songs that we know from the soundtrack. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like recently there was a meme about the Monster Mash <laughs> the song arguably being about a dance or another song that is not actually described. Right. We don't actually get to hear the monster mash, but they talk about the monster mash in the monster mash. Or it's like the tenacious D song, the greatest song ever played or, or yeah. it's called something like that. This is not the song. This is just a tribute to the song. Right. So a lot of meta roots and like kind of, addressing and commenting on and playing around with the structure of the thing that you are or are depicting. Uh, we also talked a lot about the blurring of diegetic and non-diegetic numbers and kind of the alternating of them, which kind of makes sense if you're depicting a musical that some of them would be a part of the musical slash auditions. But also we get some that are what you would call non-diegetic numbers where they are just breaking out in song in unrealistic ways, which Leads me to the surreality of the get you head in the game number, 
because it's the first time we get a non-diegetic number. We've had some diegetic music moments up to that. This is the first time that it's just like music out of nowhere. It's like an infection on the school. Like music is spreading to everyone. Like the joke you were talking about that they made in SNL where these basketballs like start making up the rhythm of the music. It is like, what is going on? It takes you a second to get used to it there. But I noticed that this time through and I enjoyed it. And of course, this is taken to the next level in High School Musical 3 in ways that Brian and I already talked about, where it just plays around with the meta-contextual fact of what it is and what it's depicting. And are these songs in a musical or are they not? Just more and more and more. And that all paves the way for a new conceptual take on a thoughtful and playful blurring of reality in High School Musical, the musical of the series, where they can honor the original they can depict things from the original they can like include beats and lines and songs from the original in new ways different ways and it's basically a backstage drama mockumentary about a movie that's already a backstage drama so it's kind of layering in on itself even more the one thing that this movie does differently with regards to what term that i've now i'm certain have said more in the last hour and a half than I have in the entire rest of my life combined. But the layer of diegesis and messing with the the diegetic barriers of what we're seeing. In this case, it doesn't really do it with music. With one exception we'll talk about towards the end that maybe is an exception. But instead, we get these talking head segments that you're used to in mockumentaries where they're kind of pulling someone aside and like letting them give their commentary on what's happening. But I noticed this time when I was rewatching it that there are times like it swoops directly out of what is really happening and has a character comment to the camera, almost a part of the same shot. It just like it's not even taken away from the scene. It's kind of interesting how the resurgence of mockumentary, especially as a TV format, came from the British office, which like very much acknowledged the fact that it was part of filming something prior to its conclusion. And in fact, the Christmas special is about what happens after the original series came out and how people react to how they were depicted. But then subsequent mockumentaries like Parks and Rec, Modern Family have used a mockumentary structure without actually considering why they are being filmed or what they would be being filmed for, why someone would be taking their interviews on like what's going on. Uh, It's just kind of a way to like get in the heads of the characters. It's almost like as a substitute for narration. Um, the other thing that makes it quote unquote feel like a documentary or a mockumentary is there's a lot of use of handheld camps. So you're like right in the scenes. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, this is interesting. That's, that's right. That's the word for it. <laughs> it's complex, complicated because in real life, real, real life, there really is an East high And it's really in Utah, not in New Mexico, as it is within the high school musical movies. So they use it here as the setting for another fictional program. But now they're saying this is the real East High. The team isn't the Wildcats, it's the Leopards or something. Presumably whatever the team at the school is in real life. But these still are not the real students So I wonder who actually goes to school here and when they have time to do it, if they're constantly making all these projects there. And there is still room to do a real version of something like this. 
where it's actually a documentary with real students who are really at the school. So <laughs> I don't know what you would call that. High School Musical, the musical, the series, the real documentary for real or something. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. They did call it the series, the special, I think, when they did like a making of special. It's like how many extra subtitles can we add on to break this down even further? I guess we've got to watch that. And they did one for Christmas, too. So if we really yeah. wanted to understand this, we we would have prepared better. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah, it's not like we did sufficient preparation for this episode. Disney ended up hiring a soapy drama producer named Oliver Goldstick. Speaking of good names, um, he's worked on shows like Pretty Little Liars and Desperate Housewives to serve as the showrunner because he's kind of an experienced TV hand. Uh, to make this idea a reality as I'm somewhat reading between the lines here, but the idea being that Federla, however you say his name, does not have a lot of TV experience is why Goldstick was brought on. And the, the show debuted alongside the service and uh, released one episode per week, which is an interesting thing that Disney plus has done with some of their shows that is not commonly done streaming this, these days where they typically, forego the traditional TV structure and just drop a whole season at once to make it bingeable. But it's worked out really well for Disney, the popularity of the Mandalorian. And for this show, they did it the same way. One, one episode per week. As part of that one episode per week, they debuted a new song, an original song, every episode for all 10 episodes. And it's interesting thinking about like, are, is this a real musical or not a real musical? Some of the songs would like, you would have snippets of it in the show's reality. I'm going to try to not say the word diegetic anymore because I feel like I have heard myself say it too many times and do not want to hear it again. Then takes it and kind of makes it background music for something else happening in the episode. It's sometimes more produced when you hear it in the background. Uh, it's kind of like an interesting neither a fish nor foul version of being in the show universe, but also just like background music too. Yeah. It's a little like Tarzan. All the songs that we get are, well, some, some are clearly performed by the characters. We actually see them singing, but some are used as backdrops to like a montage, the plot progressing. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So uh, one interesting bit of backstage gossip on this one is that after the fourth episode, the showrunner Oliver Goldstick stepped down due to creative differences. And Fedorla, I'm sure that I'm butchering that name, stepped in as showrunner. So he was kind of taking the reins. And I think there is a pretty clear shift in tone when this happens. My theory has been that Basically, Goldstick was running a certain way, kind of a more soapy way. And then that's not what the rest of the people wanted to do. And so it instead became something a little different. The weird wrinkle on that is Oliver Goldstick actually gets the writing credit for several of the episodes after he left. So I don't know if he like wrote drafts that were then updated or he actually stuck around, but just as a writer. But for example, the ninth episode, Goldstick has a writing credit on so maybe i'm wrong and maybe the change in tone had nothing to do with the change in leadership it was just like the natural direction of the show but i don't know i thought that was kind of interesting yeah i read that in your notes i didn't realize that the creative team behind the scenes changed i did notice though i think the character of gina kind of changed 
Yes, basically exactly that time. And I'm going to get to that, but I completely, that's kind of at the heart of the change in tone. Like there's less villainy, scheming, backstabbing after the midpoint or so. They're all in this together to, to steal a line that is oft repeated here. And it's kind of more about like making sure the show happens and is a success. But there's like not really much interpersonal scheming between the students themselves. So I thought I would start rather than just hitting all the plot points. It's a big ensemble and I have thoughts about specific members of the ensemble. And for a TV show that makes a little more sense to talk about the characters because it's a little more episodic. So I just wanted to talk about some of the, the characters in this ensemble. One interesting thing about the students is they're actually all played by actual teenagers almost entirely. I know EJ's character is like 20, but I think most of them are actually teenagers and they kind of look like teenagers compared to some Hollywood stars. Not to say that they're not all, you know, attractive and ridiculously talented compared to what you would expect at a real high school. But there is a slight more realism in terms of like the look of, of people and the way they kind of carry themselves as opposed to Zac Efron in a high school musical. So uh, the leads are Nini Salazar Roberts played by Olivia Rodrigo and Ricky Bowen played by Joshua Bassett. So uh, Nini is a junior drama student uh, and she's kind of got a history of playing minor roles. And over the summer that precedes this, she gets a major breakout star at drama camp where she plays Marion the librarian, which made me laugh. It's like played up as this, she got the lead role, but it just sounds like such a humble part. Well, she's the lead in the, the female lead in the music man. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. The music man. I don't know if I've seen that one. That's the one that the, uh, is that the one that the monorail is based off of? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. It's a con man comes to town and is trying to sell the town on a music program for kids. Right. Right. So I, I think that Rodrigo playing Nini is a major highlight of this series. I think she comes across as a breakout performer. I was really smitten by her. Like I, I wanted her to be in all the scenes. I think she's just really fun to watch. She can really act on her own. Like she conveys the things that happened and the subsequent emotions really well. And she can sing. She can carry scenes. She's got good chemistry with the performers. Uh, fun fact that kind of adds to the authenticity and organic feeling is she actually wrote two of the original songs in the show. Uh, one of them is actually a co-write uh, with Joshua Bassett, the other co-star, but she has sole writing credit on All I Want, which is like one of her songs where she's reflecting on her romantic troubles. I think that's a cool touch that it wasn't like a pop producer that wrote it, but but the actress. Meanwhile, the male co-star is Ricky, and he's kind of a skater bro who dated Nini in sophomore year. And we get the backstory fairly early on that Nini had said, I love you, partially in an Instagram post song that she wrote. And he at that moment is unable to say it back and immediately like kind of freezes up and asks for a break from dating her. But we learn pretty quickly that this is seemingly because of his like confused feelings on commitment and love resulting from his parents in the midst of a crumbling marriage. So we get a little bit sympathetic towards his reaction there. So I, I think Joshua Bassett, the actor, is not an outstanding actor on his own. Like when he's forced to carry material on his own, like the divorce material, for example, he's he's only okay. He's pretty raw, but he's got really good chemistry with the other actors. And when he's paired with someone, I think he's good. I think he's quite good. 
So I, I enjoyed him as a casting. I've noticed from the comments of YouTube videos, huge swaths of young women, perhaps even girls, commenting on how beautiful they find Joshua Bassett as Ricky. He seems to be the, the popular one with the, the audience, but I don't know. Matt Cornett plays EJ Caswell. So he's the senior jock that Nini started dating during drama camp. And he's like your stereotypical chiseled, handsome, talented dreamboat. Uh, but he definitely is arrogant and entitled and is like trying to build up Nini's confidence. But it kind of comes up as like building her arrogance. The show kind of loses track of him and doesn't always know exactly what to do with him. But he does have my single favorite gag of the entire show, which happens late in the season when they are doing a dress rehearsal. And EJ has just seen his uh, audition notes where the one negative note was lacks emotional connection to the material. And he gets called on stage to do like while they're setting up the lights to say some of the lines. And he just goes all in alligator tears like wringing his heart out overacting these lines as they're doing this lighting test yeah every single thing is making him cry i just could not stop cackling when i saw this i I thought that was a hilarious gag and the best use of him in the second half of the season sophia wiley plays gina porter so she's the transfer student sophomore who's kind of ambitious about taking over the drama program and we see her as like this amazing dancer that's like her main strength She also sings some. She's got kind of like a lower register singing. She and EJ end up kind of the villains before they kind of pivot on both of them. EJ gets kind of a long redemption arc. And Gina turns around from being this villain to being kind of this sad character who's shuffled around from town to town and doesn't really have a home. That's, I think, the character pivot that you're talking about in the middle of the the series run. But I think she actually plays both parts pretty well. I thought she was pretty good. A couple other notable cast members. It is a big ensemble, but it's 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 pretty full of interesting characters. Um, Larry Saperstein, I think is how you pronounce that, plays Big Red, who is Ricky's kind of upbeat but sort of slacker best friend who always seems to just ride along with whatever Ricky is doing. And he gets roped into all of kind of Ricky's drama. He ends up getting roped into the play itself. And he kind of ends up being one of the lo- most likable characters just because he goes with the flow and uh, he always gets roped into doing things. It's, it's, it's fun to watch him. Julia Lester plays Ashlyn Caswell and she plays Miss Darbus in the film, or excuse me, in the show. She's also EJ's cousin and she's her own kind of songwriter. And what's notable about her, I think she's got good chemistry, everyone, but her best moment is she gets the show's best number, in my opinion, which is this piano ballad called Wondering. I'd say this, the vocals are strongest in that one for sure. Yeah. Frankie Rodriguez plays the character Carlos Rodriguez, who is a choreographer and assistant showrunner who kind of assists the drama teacher, Miss Jen. Dara or Dara Renee plays Courtney. That's uh, Nini's best friend, and she's also a costume designer with an awesome singing voice that we only get to discover later in the the show. Joe Serfini plays Seb, who's notable because he's a boy who desires to play Sharpay and ultimately gets cast as Sharpay. So it's it's a big cast of students, but I 
I think that it actually works really well in terms of like getting everybody a little bit of spotlight and really getting to know them over the course of 10 episodes. Yeah, it's important to shout them all out because they all have time to shine and they're all important to the plot. Right. So as far as adult characters, there's a few parents, but I mostly wanted to talk about the two teachers that we see. So one funny thing I noticed is these two teachers are the only characters who really seem homed in on the rivalry between the cliques. Like you need to be in this group or that group and this group is better than that group which is like a major plot thread in High School Musical. But the kids are all kind of like, oh, you know, do what you want to do. Enjoy it. Uh, do it. Give your best to whatever it is. And it's kind of like a, a striking contrast. I, I think that was an intentional echo. Maybe they succeeded in breaking down all the barriers, <laughs> and now it's only the boomers, the, the, <laughs> the old throwbacks who care about that anymore. Although Miss Jen proclaims herself a millennial in the first episode. I would say yes. she's a little older than us, maybe, but... Not much. But not much. We're getting old. Yeah. So, as mentioned, Kate Reinders, I don't know how you pronounce that, R-E-I-N-D-E-R-S, as Miss Jen, plays the drama teacher. She's the visionary of, of this scheme to play the musical at the high school that it was filmed at, and she is a former high school musical background dancer and extra, although there's a plot point where she plays up what her actual involvement was. I think she's awesome. I think she was great casting. She had very little major credits prior to this, but she is a good co-star. She carries things on her own, I thought. She decides to play Miss Jen basically like Leslie Nope, where she's like relentlessly optimistic and positive-spirited, but kind of with her own drama girl, drama queen flair to it. She also is the funniest character. She gets lots of really good lines. But she handles the dramatic stuff pretty well. So I, I thought she was a casting coup for someone who like had almost no previous background, no notable TV experience, although she had done some Broadway. I will say I thought this was Kristen Chenoweth for like two-thirds of the show. <laughs> I can see uh, that, yeah. But there's a number that she gets near the end of the show with Lucas Grabeel from the uh, original movies. Right. She's kind of having a fantasy where Ryan comes and visits her and validates her. But in that number, uh, Ryan's like, oh, you could play all the big roles. You could play Elsa or Elphaba. And she says, I'm really more of a Glinda. And I looked it up and she played Glinda not in the Broadway performance originated by Kristen Chenoweth, but she played her on the stage in Chicago. The ah. Chicago production, she was the Glinda. Very cool. Good catch. I hadn't noticed that. The other teacher who's a, a lead is Mark St. Sir, C-Y-R, Mark St. Sir, as Benjamin Mazzara, who's a STEM teacher in charge of the robotics club and is a rival of Miss Jen, like constantly griping about Miss Jen and like her, how she stole kids from the robotics club. And this guy is a scene stealer. I don't know why they didn't put him in more scenes because he is extremely funny and he has great sparks with Kate Rinders and they have this like the rivalry and the, the tension there was always a highlight for me. I even enjoyed it more this time around whenever he was on screen. So I'm hoping in season two he gets a little bit more play. Yeah, I felt some solidarity with him having led a few robotics clubs. <laughs> yeah. 
But there's also like he's a robotics guy, but you always get these hints that there is like layers to him, like how he kind of knew how all the theater lights work. He's like, I, my, my our robotics are very dramatic or I forget exactly what he says. And then he, he quotes Whitman at one point. One of the kids is griping and he's like, well, what's on your mind? And he says, oh, why would you care? He says, I contain multitudes. And I was like, oh, there's, there's a little more to this guy. Anyways, that's the kind of the cast. And as you mentioned, it's worth noting them all because they all get to shine at different points. At this point, I'm going to hop into a recap. The, the show opens with a clip of High School Musical itself freezing on Miss Jen's cell phone as she shares with the viewers that she's been hired as the drama teacher of East High and plans to stage High School Musical, the musical, at the school where High School Musical was filmed. And then we get the uh, opening bit of drama between EJ, Nini, and Ricky, where uh, Nini's back. She's calling herself Nini 2.0, dating EJ, and Ricky wants to get back together with her. But she, of course, is resistant. She has her new boyfriend. She's 2.0. And during casting, she's initially hesitant, but after some encouragement, auditions to be Gabriella and gives this really stirring audition after the lights go out um, against uh, Gina, who's that intimidating transfer student who's also auditioning to play Gabriella. Meanwhile, EJ is the front runner to play Troy. But Ricky storms on stage, determined that the way he's going to win back Nini's heart is to become Troy himself. This, of course, parallels the flubbed audition arriving late from High School Musical 1. And he is not very well prepared. He plays a song on his guitar and he performs the song that Nini wrote for him where she confessed her love prior to breakup. And he has no drama experience, and it seems like a little bit of a train wreck, but the song goes well. And when the cast list is revealed, Nini is Gabriella, Ricky is selected as Troy, EJ is the understudy for Troy, and also is Chad. Gina, meanwhile, is the understudy for Gabriella and plays Taylor. Ashlyn is going to play Ms. Darbus, and Seb does indeed get cast as Sharpay. So those are kind of our leads there. And of course, we have now paralleled the dynamics of and kind of messed around with the dynamics of the original High School Musical here. During early read-throughs and rehearsals, it becomes apparent how much friction there are among all these leads, with Nini being called to Ricky, though EJ is jealous of Ricky and Nini's past relationship, and both EJ and Gina desperately wanted to be the leads in our understudies. Ricky faces down the gravity of being the lead in a musical, and considers resigning, but he decides to go all in to show Nini he's serious. This kind of puts into play Gina attempting to be the villain here and trying to get Nini to resign, and I guess also Ricky, although she cares more about Nini. She steals Nini's phone for EJ, who's feeling jealous and wants to spy on her texts. And EJ ends up deleting a voicemail from Ricky, where Ricky kind of was asking whether Nini had felt a reconnection. And this kind of puts all of the relationships into a spiral. EJ was about to return the phone and apologize, but then he and Ricky clash and EJ gets defensive again about coming clean. And it's really starting to pile on like remixed or reinterpreted high school musical moments like the moment where the bros are starting to get back together in High School Musical is the moment where EJ and Ricky have these like angry sparks at each other. And then we have a version of uh, what I've been looking for between EJ and Nini 
as they are kind of on the outs where it's like supposed to be their romantic connection moment, but they like have anti-chemistry at that moment. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of references here kind of back to the, the source material. As mentioned, Nina, Nini figures out that EJ stole her phone. She subsequently dumps him. And right around this time, Ricky learns that his parents are officially separating, which sends him into a tailspin. That it concludes with him trying to kiss Nini while staying at her house. And it's sort of like he's trying to stay away from home. He goes to her house because that's where he's safe. But it backfires. Meanwhile, Gina and EJ haven't given up on their attempts to take the leads and now ej wants to get nini's heart back and this culminates in gina insisting that ej and gina go to homecoming together even though ej and gina have no interest in dating each other it's sort of gina insists she has the secret plan to get ej to be the lead and of course she thinks she's going to get nini out of the picture too so then we we get to this homecoming dance we have Seb, the male Sharpay, striking up a romance with Carlos, the choreographer. Seb makes a dramatic late appearance to the dance. Meanwhile, Gina and EJ clash at the homecoming dance. So all of this drama is kind of piling together. And this is right where I think the show makes a pivot from like trying to be a soapy, scheming show into one that's a little softer on its characters. Because Gina reveals that there was no secret plan. She just wanted the drama and chaos to kind of ultimately break her way. And at this point, everybody's kind of a little bit warmer to each other. Ricky, who had been harsh to Gina, basically comforts her and they start to build a little bit of a connection. And I don't know, everybody starts to be nice to each other, which is coincidentally right around the time that the showrunner changed. It makes me wonder what the secret plan would have been. (laughs) It's kind of like with the... J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson, Star Wars thing. It's like they keep swapping off and, you know, with improv, you're supposed to do yes and. You're supposed to build on what's been established. (laughs) But they kept shutting down each other's ideas. Actually, no, this is what's going to (laughs) happen. And story threads get violently cut short. Right. The day after the homecoming dance, Miss Jen is accosted by the principal for fabricating her resume and shirking her homecoming chaperone duties to have a girls night with some of the drama students. And this leads to perhaps the most unrealistic moment in the show when the drama kids all unite to make this dramatic performance at the school board hearing to convince the school board that, that Miss Jen should stay on. And we get, we get a cameo that reminded me of Chuck Norris in Dodgeball. Chuck Norris is like the third judge and you you don't ever see him except just for one shot when he gives a thumbs up. And in this case, the cameo is Casey Stroh, who if you've watched the high school musical movies, you would recognize as she's kind of one of the main dancers. She's always kind of there hanging out with the crew whenever there's the whole high school musical crew there. She's the one who had been the hip hop dancer in uh, Stick to the Status Quo. But she gives like a the equivalent of the Chuck Norris thumbs up from Dodgeball. She says, when is opening night? And uh, it's kind of a (laughs) reality-breaking cameo at that moment. But Miss Jen is indeed in cleared of wrongdoing, paving the way for the musical. I think being a fake teacher would be more of a serious offense. Falsifying credentials like that. 
Yeah, but I guess the school board gets over it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. Like more than I guess once your foot is in the door and you're doing the job, that's what it takes. I no. guess, yeah. Later in the fall, uh, Ricky is distraught to learn on Thanksgiving that his mom is not only sticking with the separation, but dating another man in Chicago. And so Ricky kind of seeks the comfort of Gina, who he's continued to facilitate a connection with in her post-villain days. Uh, Nini, meanwhile, is having her feelings towards Ricky, her romantic feelings, starting to resurface. They are the co-romantic leads of a uh, film, after all. And she begins to feel jealous of Gina. One moment this jealousy manifests itself is when there's a reimagining of the the kind of breakup ballad when there was me and you where Ricky instead plays it as kind of this bittersweet connecting song for Gina. That might've been just aesthetically my favorite reimagining of uh, something from high school musical that night, that Thanksgiving night, Ashlyn is hosting a big party and Nini and Ricky, their kind of jealousy comes to a head. They have a little bit of a clash but the, the main kind of outcome of that Thanksgiving party is we learn that Gina, who's kind of this ongoing transfer student, will in fact have to transfer schools once more. And that put a, puts a big damper on the Thanksgiving party. She's going to have to miss the musical. I really enjoyed this Thanksgiving party. We uh, get Carlos, the, the choreographer, ha- who was obsessed with the musical when he was a kid, made his own immersive board game called High School Musical, the Choosical. And we also get Big Red kind of like effortlessly and humbly flirting with Ashlyn this whole time. It's like a, another new romance on the the series, but he's like so effortless about it that it's really winning. But I thought this Thanksgiving party was a lot of fun. It's the one moment where I really became aware that it was fall. I mean, I should have caught on before now, but, I, you know, I just marathoned three movies. I was maybe <laughs> not 100% focused on what was happening. They do have a homecoming dance. Right. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Thanksgiving, this completes the cycle. This is the missing (laughs) fall chapter at last. Although we didn't get a good Halloween bit, which would have been nice. True. Also during that Thanksgiving evening, Miss Jen and Mr. Mazzara find themselves both spending the evening at the school, despite them bragging to each other that they were going to have their own great dinner plans. And they actually kind of bond a little bit. They watch Big Hero 6, some nice in-brand advertising for Disney. And they accidentally set off a fire, which burns down the theater at East High. This leads to the second, we need to unite and save the musical moment, where uh, the next day the drama team decides to restage everything at a local theater. But we clearly see that Miss Jen has some sort of history with this theater. And we, in fact, discover at this theater which is like this beat up old mess where they last had a weird fashion show and there's this recurring gag that's great where things keep falling and startling miss jen or like popping up and startling miss jen like this creepy old theater um i I was laughing a lot during that miss jen reveals that there's a little more to her own high school musical story she had a line is that the last apple which was cut and she kind of had a breakdown at the premiere of the movie when she learned that her line was cut and she blames that on her never having professional success. During this uh, trip to this new theater, Nini and Ricky are practicing some of their lines as, as Troy and Gabriella, and they come 
really close to to kissing, to reconnecting romantically. One interesting mm-hmm. thing about this is it seemed like they changed their mind about Nini and Ricky's history halfway through the season. There's definitely explicit references to when you met Ricky, since you've known Ricky, being like the sophomore year. Like he was just the sophomore year boyfriend, basically. But here it kind of rewrites them as having like this long best friend history growing up. Kind of like, I mean, I, I kind of dig that. You know that I, I am into like longtime best friend romance stories. We've talked a lot about that. See uh, some kind of wonderful, but definitely felt like a rewrite of their history mid-season. Uh, we get the big high school musical cameo around now when Miss Jen faints. And you kind of mentioned this. Lucas Grabeel appears. This is the one song that is only dubiously in reality. But given that it is a, quote, contractually obligated dream sequence uh i guess we can give it a pass as being diegetic because it is inside her fainted brain and uh, she makes up her mind that uh she's going to overcome her professional failings by inspiring the students on this musical and she wakes up with the inspiration let's go film or excuse me let's go perform high school musical in the gymnasium where we're all in this together had been filmed so they all go back and all of that leads us to opening night of the musical, the the climax, the finale of this first season. It opens with an in-media race in the middle of things with uh, EJ apparently stepping in to play Troy for the second act for some reason that we don't know. So we, we uh, of course, cut backwards in time and we learn that Ricky is wanting to express his own affection for Nini. They've been circling around each other this whole season. So he writes her a song, which in fact he did co-write with the actress who plays Nini. She also has a gift to give him. She wants to express her affection too. But throughout the day, they never have the right moment to give their gifts or share their feelings. And then it's playtime. I guess you call it showtime on stage. And during the first act, Nini and Ricky both have moments of where they need to freak out. So for Ricky, his mom, in the midst of this messy separation and divorce, although not that messy because apparently... She still gets along with Ricky's dad, but she's brought her new boyfriend from Chicago to meet Ricky, and he doesn't notice it until he's airborne on this uh, this harness. Meanwhile, Nini's freaking out because the dean from a performing arts school is in the audience, and when Ricky pieces all of this together, knows that he can't do his own best performance, he backs out of the second act so that EJ can step in, be the natural star that he is, and be a performance to match Nini. But of course, when it comes to the climax, breaking free, Ricky steps back into the gym to watch Nini perform it, and she beckons him on stage. They perform a charged and intimate rendition of the duet, and it's kind of, (laughs) you get the sense that this whole production is a little bit of a mess at this point. Yeah, it's got to be very confusing for the audience. They keep changing who's playing who. Right, because one bit that I skipped over is that Gina comes back to play Taylor for but just for the second act. So it's like they had all these switches multiple times of who was who. Oh, and then Troy was going to be Carlos for a bit, but then it goes back to being EJ. I can imagine this being very confusing. Finally, they have an emotional curtain call where Miss Jen gets to say the line that was cut from the film, is this the last apple? Ricky confronts Nini and finally blurts out after this being the thrust of the conflict from the pilot he says i love you and they share a kiss and reconnect 
And then we get kind of our lead-ins to possible conflicts to the second season. Gina maybe moving back to live with Ashlyn. Nini perhaps going to this drama school. Miss Jen and Miss Nazara getting outed as the source of the fire. And Ricky proclaiming that he wants to do this again. And Miss Jen saying, wait till you see what I've picked for the spring musical, which they have since revealed will be Beauty and the Beast themed. So that'll be our season two is Beauty and the Beast putting on the musical for, I guess, the second show of the year. Yep. More Disney tie-ins. Yeah. And so that wraps up 10 episodes, five hours worth of story of uh, High School Musical, the musical, the series. If you've stuck with us this long, you must be a true wildcat. Thank you for sticking with us. Oh, man. I just realized we forgot to do our warm-ups before we started our podcast, Dan. I want to do the... Yeah. (laughs) To start us off. Hands up and down. Yeah. This will be one for the ages, I think. We'll be looking back on this one. Our our Mount Everest. Yeah, I've... It's been a long time since I've watched three movies in a row before. I've never done it all with one series in a day before. Yeah. You also had the fourth and then the series all within a week, too. So what did we say? 718 minutes. Let's let's go ahead and bring this home here with again. We're still kind of on the main course here. So I want to talk about some some good things. And then next we'll talk about some not so good things. We'll jump into our signature rating session. Is it good? Where we have an eight point rating scale, and then you can maybe give us a preview for for what's on a hopefully shorter viewing schedule for next week. Sounds good. So good things about this. I have several notes. I'm going to confess that I really enjoy this. I enjoyed it both times through that I've watched it now. To me, the kind of inquantifiable thing about this is that. It's just kind of joy crystallized. I smiled the entire time, both times through. I do think it loses a little bit of steam a couple places, but like it just blends a lot of different tones and ideas really well. It makes the characters really likable and engaging, all of them. You're rooting for all of them, but they're all kind of their own thing. Even the sentimental stuff, which it leaned hard in on the second half. We got to do this for the show. These people believed in me. This feels great. It's a magical feeling. It worked for me. Often that stuff doesn't. It did work for me. I even choked up a few times. And the main thing is, like, I was not in drama at all, ever. But this made me want to go back in time and be a part of a drama club in high school or college or something like that. Like, I kind of wish that I had done theater after I watched this. Just the way that it's a little community and the shared love of building a a show, a production together. It's really conveyed here in a way that it isn't in any of the high school musical movies or in other things that kind of center around high school life have really captured for me. It was kind of a unique joy that, that it it brought to me. So now is a good time to say that one reason I felt a connection watching this series and the films is that throughout my high school and college experience, I've always kind of been a little bit jealous of theater kids. I've existed, I think on the periphery of the theater world because in TJ, where we went to high school, I did a performance on the musical Saw at the freshman lock-in and the audience was really into it. And that was a huge high that kind of changed the course of my life. After that point, I always did the talent shows at TJ. The auditorium is like my favorite place there at TJ. And I went back not too long ago for the 10 year reunion, 10th, 10th high school reunion 
part of it took place there and they've done a lot of renovation of the building in recent years but probably because all the money went to science and tech stuff the auditorium has not changed at all it's like exactly the same oh wow and so that was a big throwback i will say everything that i've done with it has been on like an individual level like i did the t musical performances and the talent shows and then in college i got into doing stand-up and i won the william and mary stand-up competition but that was maybe partially because I failed to get into the improv troupe. I, I auditioned and didn't make it into that. So it, it's kind of been ways of horning in individually, like forcing myself into the theater world and performance that way and not being part of a big group that I, I do feel like I missed out on something. But it's definitely a high being there in front of an audience. And I think my show on public access television is once again a way of brute forcing my way individually into some semblance of that experience. That's really interesting, yeah. Uh, I will say that in college, I was part of a group called Symphonicron that during the winter break, we would come back two weeks early and like all live together in a couple houses in the neighborhood and use the theater building to put on Gilbert and Sullivan shows. And so it was like everybody involved with the production all lived together. So I was aware of some of the actor drama for the first time. There were definitely showmances. That's the term they drop in this series. Yeah, some sure. of that was going on. I was the fly rail operator the first year, which meant I was up in the rafters pulling ropes. Like I actually would raise and lower the curtain and that show especially had like a swing that comes down and like an actor rides the swing. So lots of stuff up and down. Uh, and then the remaining years I was in the pit orchestra, but that was kind of my big moment of connection with real theater people for the first time. <laughs> and especially in my senior year, I did take some theater classes. I took a playwriting course and the play ended up getting put on by students. So that was a, another big shining moment and a good memory is that one day I walked in during Symphonicron and like one of the lead actors was sitting there reading a script. And I was like, oh, what are you, what are you reading? He says, oh, I'm reading your script. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, mind blowing. Because apparently the drama teacher had like printed out a big stack of them and left them for auditions or something. I was like, whoa. That's cool. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Not exactly the same, but like the, the high of somebody reading something that you wrote. I was a columnist at the college I went to, a sports columnist, and I would always find it amusing. I would look for people holding the school newspaper and I would always try to like just see what they were reading. And maybe like five times ever, I saw someone reading one of my columns and I wanted to be like, I'm right behind you, man. You're reading my thing. Like, this is so cool. I didn't actually do that because I didn't know the people, but maybe a, a minor version of the, the thrill that you're talking about. I will say one thing that we were both a part of is marching band in high school. And to me, that's kind of the closest I ever got to this feeling of all being connected to this one creative act that you all have invested in. It's different in part for me because I was in the trumpet section, which anytime you're in something like this, Everything gets its own drama and personalities and stuff. So the trumpets were always like the 
too cool for school, cynical guys. That was kind of part of their personas. And so I kind of latched onto that somewhat. So I like didn't get really into the the music and the performance element itself because like we were, you know, the trumpets were expected to be kind of above that. But I don't know. I kind of wish I could have been a little bit more earnestly enthusiastic about creating and performing something like I kind of do wish I had done drama or I don't know some of the the jealousy that you've talked about. I can tell you I'm going to encourage my daughters to be a part of drama clubs. I'll let them decide what they do, but I'm I'm going to encourage them to. I think it's an important thing. Like you've seen a lot of it in the wake of some of the school shootings when like students have become spokespeople, they've almost all been drama club members. It seems like it's a thing that builds up your confidence in expressing yourself. So again, I just think it's cool. Got a bit reflective there, but that to me is what this show kind of evokes. It, it kind of gets you in there and like makes you really feel like the show is lived in and like you could be there. So pivoting back to another strength of the show in general, I think the show does well by its premise. It's a, it's a fun romp. It's a blend of nostalgia, but also like somewhat skeptical of the unrealism of the high school musical series. And it, it gets to use a, a good amount of like meta commentary moments. And as I've mentioned, like remixing or, changing something about the source material, but still getting to depict it in a fun way. I think it makes pretty good use of that. It doesn't go over the top with it, especially in the second half. It seems less committed to like recreating specific beats, but it still does a, an enjoyable job with it, I think. I've already talked a lot about the cast and ensemble, but I got to point out that their charm is the highlight of the show for me. Like They really make it for me. I think the cast is awesome all around. There's not really any weak castings. I feel like they didn't really know what to do with EJ and they could have had a little bit more of a couple of other characters, but the cast itself I thought was 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 really good. Was there anything on the the cast that you wanted to mention that like a highlight or a low light for you? Hmm. It's pretty strong. I think especially they did a good job with having everyone get important story beats. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's a long cast list, but you got to talk about them all because they're all pivotal. Right. Um, So another thing that I'm curious on your opinion of, given some of your remarks earlier, but for me was a positive overall, is this depicts an incredibly inclusive and non-toxic vision of teen drama. Social values are extremely progressive. I mean, it really embraces queerness without calling attention to the fact that it is. Like, it avoids a lot. It has multiple openly gay characters or otherwise queer characters without having coming out stories or like making it be a thing like this person is excluded because they're they're queer or they're gay and it was kind of refreshing to me to just have it there without calling attention to it another one is just the cast itself much less than half the cast is both straight and white there are multiple women of color who are very typically underrepresented in TV and film. And nobody's really like mean or toxic. The only character, EJ, who does something really toxic, stealing Nini's phone and manipulating her relationship with Ricky to some extent, spends the rest of the season atoning for it. And I don't know, just like so many times when they figure out the uplifting or inclusive thing to say or to do, and the rare times that they stray from that, it usually gets corrected by the end of the episode. And it does this in a way without feeling like it's cheapening the conflict of it. 
This, I think, ties into me wishing that I could have been a part of this group. It just feels like a family of sorts. And I thought it did a good job of, of depicting that in a way that made me immersed and made me feel included. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. This <laughs> this show is woke. Definitely. It is, it is woke AF. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And I, I think it embraces that message very much. Did you find that exhausting or contrived? It's it's in your face. I do feel like they had a checklist of boxes, just different demographics they were trying to represent in abundance. But, I mean, it serves the purpose that it was going for. I, I think it is unabashed about what it is. But it delivers on that message. Right. So... I, I think it takes the mission statement of High School Musical 1 and advances it through 13 years of progressiveness and progression and progress. Indeed. There were a lot of details also that I just enjoyed. I'm just going to list a couple. We're already running long here, as you listeners who have made it this far know. But this is my chance to talk about the show, so I'm just going to mention a couple things that I liked. I really loved the board game, High School Musical, The Chusical. I wanted to like see what all the prompts and the questions were and see how he made this game and what press stills he included in the physical version of it. It made me think of your invented card game, Brian. I thought about that too. I Anytime there's a made-up board game, I want to know more about it. Uh, like Cones of Dunshire right. and Parks and Rec. Uh, we also get a few scenes in Nini's room and... I'm not a teenage girl, but if I was, this is like the perfect room. It's so adorable and enticing. She has like this swing kind of thing. She's got like these uh, string lights. It's a vibe. I want to like go remake my daughter's room to look like this room. Be like pictures of her friends hanging everywhere and stuff. I also admired more so than High School Musical. This show kind of digs into the nitty gritty of the making of the musical in terms of depicting rehearsals, depicting specifics of the stage stunts and the costumes and things like that. It actually felt more dedicated to the production of the musical aspect. And then the last major positive I wanted to share, this is a really funny TV show. I laughed a lot, even the second time through when I knew some of the jokes. It's funnier than any of the high school musical movies. It's funnier than the Sharpay movie. There's a couple solid laughs every episode. I already mentioned EJ gets to have his big alligator tears. The teacher has a lot of good lines. One of my favorites is, I have more chemistry with the woman who definitely doesn't color my hair than they do, the, the people that she's talking about. There's a scene where Ricky is going to stay at Big Red's house, and Big Red has this elaborate machine for his sleep apnea and he has like this ridiculous over-the-top jungle white noise that's just a hilarious bit of uh over-the-top noise comedy there a lot of throwaway funny lines big red during the table read says did i just join a cult after things get weird there's a, a bit in one episode where ricky puts on some cologne to try and win back nini she mentions you smell weird and the name of the cologne is Throb. And he says, hey, you love Throb, which is just a funny line. <laughs> There's a lot of times where I was watching this and I was like, I wish I was watching this with Brian right now because I think we would both be laughing at this. But anyways, I do like that. So, line. Did you have anything that you wanted to add into uh, things that you like now that I've gone through my litany? 
I thought the songs were strong. I especially liked the one Born to be Brave. I thought that was the best opportunity to put Ortega-style large group choreography to work. Uh, that's the one that takes place at the homecoming dance. That's right. I actually didn't. I thought it was a real pop song. I feel like I've maybe heard this, but I think I'm mixing it up with a song called This Is My Fight Song and a couple others in a similar style. I agree that it sounded like it almost borrowed like runs of a couple notes from some big pop yeah. song or maybe a couple. It also reminded me a lot of This Is Me from The Greatest mm. Showman, the one that the bearded lady sings. I haven't actually seen that movie or heard that song. I'll have to listen to that. Uh, or um, Firework by Katy Perry. It also sounds a lot like Firework by Katy Perry. Yes, agree. All right, guess we'll move down to the, the not-so-good things. There are there are some hiccups with this. It's not a perfect show. I don't like the moments where it breaks really heavily out of the realism it kind of feels like those are the moments when it's trying too hard to be a clever thing. The worst one for me was the school board performance. I don't know. Think of Ricky in episode one saying, I hate how people just break out into song. And here they are doing this elaborate number in the school board that just kind of felt unrealistic to me. And in particular, I think there's a stretch around like the homecoming episode and this where they're not necessarily bad, but they just kind of lose steam on what had been really good about the show. Also, when Ryan appears in the Miss Jen's dream sequence, that very much pulled me out. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it because I think it's good they had a cameo from the original, but that very much pulled me out of the show's reality in that moment, of course. It is interesting and notable that a lot of this show tries to be more real than the original High School Musical movies. And it mocks their artificiality multiple times, like the strange lines, especially in the first one, Gabriella calling herself the freaky genius girl. Right. They point that out as being weird, just not the way that people talk. And they tried to make dialogue and characterizations more authentic here. But at the same time, this product is very manufactured itself and there's weirdness to it being a mockumentary and yet taking place at the real East high, which is a real high school. So I, I don't know exactly the point that I'm trying to make here, just that it seems to be wanting it both ways, wanting the cake and eating it too, saying, Oh, this is the real presentation of modern high school life. While at the same time being very, much a product of an industry being very refined and having the trappings of what it is, a musical, which is inherently unreal. Yeah, I completely agree. A lot of the musical moments too, like the Born to be Brave, like when the characters start singing, it's like back when I used to watch Glee and you would know instantly from the, the way that the show sounded, whether it was a dialogue moment or a singing moment, because it would just change the way that the episode sounded. And this one does that same thing. Also, I sense there was a little bit of like biting the hand that feeds you because whenever they would mock something in the original High School Musical movies, it's like, hey, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> Nobody would be paying your production team if you weren't milking the existing IP. Right. It almost makes me wonder who is the real target audience for this. Not everyone is going to be as into like a 
teen comedy at the age that I am at, or perhaps you are at, and really vibe this. But we were kind of the people who were the right age. We were a little old, but kind of the people who were the right age for the original high school musical movies. And this seems not really pitched to that audience because it's really about current teens. On the other hand, if you're a teen now, would you care about a 15-year-old Disney Channel movie franchise? I don't know. I mean, I guess it worked for me and enough of people that they renewed it for a second season, but I had trouble figuring out exactly who their hardcore main audience was. But yeah, that kind of wraps up my complaints. Uh, did you have anything else you wanted to, to add on here before we get to our our long overdue, is it good? No, I think we've reached that point. Let's <laughs> make some value judgments. As our loyal listeners will remember, is it good is an eight point rating system ranging from a 1 out of 8 of very not good all the way up to Torday good, an 8 out of 8. We have already rated four movies, and we are now going to rate a season of a TV show this episode. So, Brian, you are the guest. You once again get the privilege of providing a rating first. Is High School Musical, the musical, the series, season one, good? So I think it has done a remarkable thing, which is do this metatextual tribute to an existing film series while simultaneously creating this large new cast of characters and developing all of them. It's an effective production on its own merits to the point that they almost don't need the high school musical legacy. I think this team could put together a show that would still be engaging with this same group of actors, still tell a captivating story well at the same time it does use that legacy in interesting ways and extends the already odd and complex meta theatrical nature of the original films in a way that seems true to the legacy that said in our last episode i kind of talked about what makes a very good for me and an exceptionally good and a tour day good and a lot of it is probably very non-objective and is just, did it appeal to me in a way that inspires me to chase people down and say, hey, watch this. I don't know if I would say that for this show. It's not quite to my taste, but it is well-made. It is a very competent production. Like I said, brings in all those elements and makes something that is more than the sum of its parts. I think my gut says this is good, but I've already lumped in a lot of things at good. I think this stands on its own two feet. I'm going to put this at an admittedly low for me, but a six nonetheless. It, it, it just squeaks into being a six, a very good. That well articulated. I'm a little surprised, honestly. I, uh, I don't know. I felt like I was vibing with it a lot more than you were. But maybe that's just because we were kind of hurrying through towards the end here. You were. You, you were clearly vibing with it harder. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you've turned me around a little bit. I think a lot of talents went into this. Like I said, my gut says just stick it at five, but I stuck the movies both at five, one and three. So low low six. And that's now the floor is yours. So that, that tells me that you ranked it above any of the high school musical movies. And of course, the Sharpay movie, uh, which I will now claim that that is very much true for me. I enjoy this notably more than... Uh, any of the high school musical movies. I think the characterization is stronger. 
I think the tone is more appealing. I think it's the right amount of soapiness and the right amount of uplifting and the right amounts of all of the things that it is. I do think it is not a masterpiece by any stretch. I think there are inessential sections, which is enough to knock it down. Um, I flirted with giving it an exceptionally good, the same reason that I gave Everybody mm-hmm. Wants Some an exceptionally good, which is our seven out of eight. I feel as if this doesn't quite get there, though. It's close, but it doesn't quite get there for me. It brings me a lot of happiness, but I'm going to land on a high, very good. So despite me feeling like I vibed with it a lot more than you did, we ended up on the same rating, which means we hit the same rating for everything, if I'm not mistaken, I think. So I had High School Musical 1 is good. High School Musical 2 is good-ish. High School Musical 3 is good. The Sharpay movie at... Not Not Good, and High School Musical, the musical, the series, at Very Good. Is that an exact match for you? I think so. We got to go back to the tape. I think I put multiple things at five. Good. If I didn't, this might get bumped down to five. But yes. All right. I'll put it just a hair above the other things, wherever those fell. We've we've been talking for a while now. <laughs> it's possible things have been lost to the ether. That's all right. We'll have to go back to the tape to fully understand what we've done here. So... It has come to this, a conclusion of our magnum opus, at least until the Gravity Falls episode. That's right. Had to prime our engines, get you in the mindset for something along the lines of an 800-minute watch load. A Christmas miracle, five ratings, one episode. We've hit the end. If anyone's still listening, thank you. Thank you for sticking through this with us. I hope you enjoy talking about High School Musical as much as we enjoy talking about it. I, As this is the last episode of 2020, I feel the urge to end this year with a separate parting thought. So I'm going to go ahead and dive into that now, Brian. Okay. And that is that one of my good friends and our, our colleague, Colton, he wrote with us on our, our blog, earned this for a long time, for years. He sent me a Christmas letter, the update on his kids, and he included a poem at the end of it. And... All credit to Colton for finding this, but I think it's just the perfect way to end 2020. He notes that this poem titled Good Timber was written in the early 1900s, not merely by a lumberjack, but the managing editor of American Lumberman magazine. So thank you, Colton, for sharing this. And I'm now going to share it with our listeners. This poem is called Good Timber. The tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light, but stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to gain and farm his patch of soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow with ease. The stronger wind, the stronger trees, the further sky, the greater length, the more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snow, in trees and men good timbers grow. Where thickest lies the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of both, and they hold counsel with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars. Of many winds and much of strife, this is the common law of life. So here's to a 2021 that makes us feel like good timber as a result of 2020. Yes, may it be the start of something new. Oh, I couldn't have scripted it better myself. Thank you, Brian. 
Who did you say wrote that poem? Uh, he doesn't. He didn't give me a name, but he said it was the managing editor of Lumberman Magazine. Let me see if I got the the title. Oh wow. Oh, excuse me, Douglas Malick. That's a good one. And when does it date from? He just said the early 1900s. I okay. might find a link and add it as our uh, extra content for this post. It, it reminds me a little bit of uh, one that I like, which is "If" by a Rudyard Kipling. It's like ways to be strong in a rhyming poem. So do you have a preview for us for next week, Brian? I do. So I expect by the time these things are out and into your ears, this may no longer be a timely pick, but as it stands, we're recording here a couple days before Christmas still. We've only had one explicitly holiday-themed entry so far. You know, all, all things going according to plan will mean that we will continue this show on in through the next year and we may well have another christmas season here on our program if we don't i wanted to get another one in here so my next pick is one of the many many endless adaptations of charles dickens's a christmas carol this is the 1970 musical adaptation scrooge starring albert finney in the title role i have not seen that one I was thinking of uh, picking the, the Muppet one at some point, but I'm glad to get the chance to experience one that I've never seen before. To your point about the, the seasons and whether we'd have another Christmas season, A, I hope we do have another Christmas season for sure. I hope we can keep this up through 2021. B, I've always been of the opinion that it's kind of lame that Christmas season is considered over around midnight, December 26th. Like People immediately shut the door on all things Christmas. When one of the common interpretations of the 12 days of Christmas takes you not just to New Year's, but to Epiphany in early January, I feel like we spend so long building up to Christmas, we should spend more time once Christmas has happened, like celebrating the spirit of the day itself. So anyways, I'm with you on, on doing another another holiday one. I don't think that is a perversion of the holiday spirit at all. You need some time for decompression after peak Christmas for sure. I will say, if we had not watched five movies for this episode, my thought originally was to assign a slate of Christmas Carol adaptations and compare the songs. So Muppets definitely would have been on there. I was also going to throw in Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, as well as the version from the early 2000s starring Frasier as Scrooge, Kelsey Grammer. Oh, man. So if you're... If, if you got nothing else to do, <laughs> maybe throw some of that there in there. There are some possibilities. Maybe just listen to some soundtracks. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, those are going to be in my mind as we're talking. So Cool. <laughs> yes. Thank you all for listening, guys. It's It's been fun. We've done some legwork for this one, and we appreciate you listening. Uh, Brian, you and I and the listeners, we're all in this together. And so I want to thank you for another fun episode and fun recording of the Goods, a film podcast. Find us on all your platforms and thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. And until next week when we talk about Scrooge, this is Dan. And Brian. Have a good one and a happy holiday season, everyone. Bye, everybody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.